Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hi, this is Mia. So before we get to today's episode, last Friday, the rank and file of the Burgerville Workers Union, which is the country's first successful fast food union, went on strike against a campaign of disciplinings and firings of primarily trans and POC workers by the bosses, who are once again trying to crush the union. The strike has worked so far, but they need support from the community to help pay workers and, you know, help these people feed their families so they can continue fighting the boss's capitalism and building democracy in the workplace. You can go to bit.ly slash burger defense to donate to their funds. Uh, we, will, we will have a link to that in the description. And yeah, thank you all so much. And now on to the show. Ah, and welcome to It Could Happen Sheer, part of Wool Zone Media. <laughs> I am one of your hosts, DJ Daniel, and I am joined by three wonderful people, one of which is actually going to lead us to the pro- I didn't press record on my own device. That is you awesome. have to do that again. Oh. You have to do that all over. <laughs> Amateur hour. I cannot believe that. I Wait, was just telling all, everybody to press record. Should we all make a new uh, file? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. I'm just gonna fucking. I'm so fucking yeah. stupid. Oh my so god. Okay. 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 We're gonna do it again. It's gonna I'm be just it. as good. But you know what? 
I'm keeping all of this in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, okay. And welcome to It Could Happen Sheer, part of the Woolzone Media Network. I am one of your hosts, DJ Danable. Really, I'm just going to be listening as someone else walks us through. I am joined by three wonderful co-hosts, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. How about we start with the person leading this conversation? James, how you doing? I'm wonderful, Daniel. I'm very excited. And who are we joined by? Shireen, do you want to say hi? Do I want to say hi? Um, <laughs> this is what I sound like today, everybody. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Not part of the plan, but hopefully this is a fun episode to listen to me sound like this. This is Shireen. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Shireen is doing her uh, plague cosplay right now, and we are joined yes. by one other wonderful person. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. Yeah, Mia. Mia also here. Yay. Uh, knows nothing about sheep. Very excited to learn <laughs> about sheep. I'm very excited. Yeah. Even Same. though I sound like this, I need to be here because I yeah. <laughs> I learned so much about chickens last yeah. time. Now it's yeah, sheep. It, yeah. We're so proud that you fought through the pain. By the way, ba, shear, and wool is the full extent of my sheep knowledge. So, you know, we got it all out of the way right there. <laughs> Great. All right, buddy. Well, let's Great. get going because I've got four pages of bullet points. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, so this oh, yeah. <laughs> it could be a week <laughs> of sheep content. Uh, Wonderful. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so talking about sheep, uh, the reason we're talking about sheep uh, is A, because it's a passion of mine, uh, and B, because uh, someone on the subreddit, uh, who's, I'm just going to get their username quickly, I can't say it, the caitiff, catif, catif, uh, yeah, one of those, um, uh, they, they posted sheep every day until, until they guessed the breed of sheep that I had in my mind. And when they guessed mm. that they sheep, I said I would do a sheep episode. Uh, that was two months ago. Uh, I think they did it while I was away <laughs> in the yeah. desert. Uh, it was like day like, four. They got, it, they got it quick, too. No, they, they, they got to like day, I just searched sheep on the subreddit. Uh, one of my friends, like they were like, oh, I looked at the subreddit for your work stuff the other day, and it's just a lot of sheep, man. Like, what do you do? <laughs> it's just a lot of sheep. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they did very well. They eventually picked the sheep, which was a Scotch blackface. Um, mm. famous for being Justin Trudeau's favorite sheep. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> you got to get him in well while you can. Yeah. Well done, well done. Strike yeah. a blow against the Canadians. I I think it's impossible to say that on a podcast and not not try, uh, I think. But yeah, hopefully, mm. hopefully we've sailed through that one. So when we're talking about sheep, right, when you're thinking <laughs> of getting sheep, the first thing I think you have to ask yourself is why? Um, and that is a good question because obviously they're a lot of work. Um, they are like born ready to die, and and at every point in in the sheep owning process, <laughs> you, you are can't, you can't just say that. You can't just say that. Shereen, we are all die? born ready to die. We're just here temporarily postponing the inevitable. I like it because they're covered in wool, and we dye the wool. Smart. Incredible. I'm adding, air, I'm adding air horns and bombs right there. Yeah, I was going to say, Daniel, if you could give yourself like a big old symbol, but boom, uh, that would be great. Um, okay, so yeah, so <sighs> when you're looking at sheep, right, um, it's a lot of work, and, and um, but they're also very lovely. I, I enjoy sheep a lot. They can be very friendly. They're a nice animal. They're not like uh, like cattle. I think sheep seem more personable to me, and you know they're soft, which is nice. Uh, so when you think about getting sheep, you're going to think. Do I want these sheep for me? Uh, do I want these sheep for wool? Or do I want these sheep for milk? Those are the three main reasons. Uh, there are also a thing called park sheep. Uh, 
the when we're talking about parks here, we're not talking about like uh, they, they live in Central Park. Uh, we're talking about like the it's a big field in front of a rich person's house. I think this is probably a specifically British thing. Um, people, yeah, people are looking at me like it's a British thing. Um, it, it, okay, so big stately homes for rich people in rural England will have a big field in front of the home with a long driveway on it. That driveway is generally planted with big trees leading up to yes. the house. And it's like, you've watched Downton Abbey, have you? I've seen that on you? TV. Yeah, I've yeah, television. I've seen. Mm-hmm. So like if you estate. can... Yes, a country estate, exactly. Um, so, like, in that country estate, uh, my dad, uh, my, both my parents in agriculture, my dad worked for someone who had a large country estate at one point in my childhood. Um, they would have sheep in that park, but, like, those sheep aren't really there to, like, make money. They're there just to look fancy. Um, so that's where you get some really crazy <laughs> really? sheep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Park sheep. So, yeah. If you if you want to go and have a look wow. up Jacob's Jacob's sheep, there's some there's some audience participation. So if you guys could open up a tab and Google a, gay, a Jacob's sheep, um, Jacob's that's, that's a sheep classic. Spelled like spelled yep. Jacob J A C O B. Yep, yep. Uh, Whoa! Yeah. Oh my oh, wow. god. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's called a polyceret sheep because it has multiple wow. horns. I don't know if the ones you're seeing have four horns, but that's a classic. Jacob sheep and they're piebald, right? Wow. So multiple colors. Um, that, that's a, I, I didn't know horns can can look like that on a sheep. Oh yeah, there there are quite a few polyceret sheep, Hebridean sheep. Wow. Um, sometimes Navajo churro sheep. Huh. If you're in the United States, are like that too. Um, so yeah, that's an option for sheep. You know, just to paint a picture for anybody who's not also actively googling this right now. Say you're driving in your car, going for a walk Stop. with your dog, and you can't you can't Google yeah. something. This is honestly this is the sheep image that I think was thought of when people think of like a devil sheep or something like that. I was thinking like the same thing. Like <laughs> these have sheep, like two long horns out the top and horns out the sides. I may just be playing a lot of Diablo 4 right now, but I immediately was like, ah, demon sheep. <laughs> if you check out Hebridean sheep, they look like a, like a very death metal sheep. They're, they're, they're all black. With <laughs> Fuck yeah. Wait, what's that one? Hebridean. Hebridean. Uh, H-E-B-R-I-D-E-A-N sheep. Yep. Whoa. Oh yeah. Same thing. Oh yep. my. Yep. Oh, they do look yeah. like double sheep. A real Baphomet <laughs> looking sheep. Horns. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, that, they're that terrifying some... and cute at the same time. Yeah. yeah. That's what you want to strive for in life. That's what I go for every yeah, time same. I get dressed in the morning. Me too. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Good. Um, so you're looking at three different types of sheep, right? Basically, your meat breeds. So they're going to grow quickly. They're going to be bigger which is going to be something you have to take in consideration when you're handling the sheep, right? And they're going to have more lambs. Um, you've got your wool breed, so they might be a smaller. They may need shearing twice a year, though, so that's something you're either going to have to do or find someone to do. Uh, and they'll give a more desirable wool, right? And there are different types of wool for different things, so that's something you might want to look into. Like if you're considering spinning or you know, you're getting these sheep primarily so you can go from like uh, farm to jumper, then... You you need to to like look into that. Um, I don't actually know how you sell wool in the US. In the UK, it was kind of a centralized sale. Uh, it's not it's not worth fuck all for the most part, at least um, unless you've got something like merino sheep. So like, don't be getting wool sheep and thinking like, oh hell yeah, I'm going to make my fortune in, in the wool market. Um, that that <laughs> ship that ship has sailed uh, centuries ago. So kind of the classic sheep uh, you're looking at for like. A lot of the sheep that you're going to see, at least in the UK, uh, are very often mules. So that's a crossbreed of sheep. Uh, it's a blue-faced or border Leicester ram over a hill-breed ewe. So hill-breed sheeps 
um, sheep. Uh, they're more hardy, right? They're the ones that live out on the um, Yorkshire Dales or up in the Lake District, right? When you see sheep up there, there's going to be hillbreed sheep. One of the advantages of hillbreeds is they can often be hefted. Uh, are we familiar with hefting? No. Never heard no, of okay. that. Hefting is when a sheep knows where its home is, so it doesn't have to necessarily be fenced in. It will come back there. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so for it's hefting, like a pet. yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a, it's a animal that lives out on the hills, but like it knows where to come back to. It's not just going to like sort of go mincing off to try and explore somewhere new. Like it <laughs> will come back. Um, that is not a characteristic of all breeds of sheep. Like you will talk about fencing. You definitely, <laughs> most sheep need to be fenced in, or they will just get out. Um, <laughs> some of them are very acrobatic uh but yeah these guys they can be hefted hillbreeds some hillbreeds can be hefted so um what that means it's passed down the maternal line so you're going to have to 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 retain that maternal line right so as you're breeding your sheep you're going to have to keep the ewe to the ewe lamb and you're going to have to keep that line because they will teach their lambs to where to come back to basically right can i, can I ask a really dumb question Please, Shireen. I recognize it's dumb and I can Google it later, but I need to know. Okay. I don't, as someone that doesn't eat a lot of meat, okay, mm -hmm. do we only eat lamb meat? Does anyone eat sheep meat? Mm -hmm. I've never that's, heard of sheep meat. Yeah, that's, that's called mutton. I've never thought of it. Mutton. Yeah. I have heard of mutton. That's, so that's mutton, sheep? Yeah. Have you, heard the, have you heard the phrase mutton dressed as lamb? No. No, I think it's rather <laughs> that sexist. One, that, 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 that seems like a British one. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely probably a British one. I think it's rather sexist. Uh, it's used in a condescending way for people who you think are dressing too young for their age, I guess. Oh. Uh, so you might be familiar with that. I thought that might be a good... But no, I thought I had a way to explain it to you. But no, mutton. Yeah, mutton is the older sheep. So there are some breeds that you get for mutton. It's not very popular. Like, like a, Americans don't eat as much lamb as British people do. And, and I think New Zealanders eat a lot of it too, but um, it's not as common here. It's, it's relatively common in the UK. Like if you went to a supermarket, you'll see it. Mutton, not so much. The you have East to cook it for longer and such. The Middle East loves mm -hmm. lamb. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's parts of China that eat a lot of sheep too. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there are lots of... It's, 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 a, it's a very hardy... Like you can have sheep in a lot of places where you can't have cattle. They're much tougher animals Like and they don't need as much grazing right there's just not as much biomass on a sheep uh so like that's why when you go to hillier parts of the uk you're going to see sheep uh and not cattle because that that's the place where sheep can live they don't need as quality of grazing for the most part either um so uh i, I let me go through a few breeds of sheep and i'm going to go for what to, what to look for when you're buying a sheep right um so just just some breeds that i've sort of uh gone off the top of my head here um Texels, uh, and you guys can look these up as we go. I think that will add add to the entertainment factor for the listeners at home. Uh, so Texels, um, they are big units. Not as big as some of the others that we're going to talk about, but they're <laughs> thick. They're, they're mostly like a meat oh. sheep, pretty lean meat. Yeah, ugly. Uh, they're kind of wide face and kind of the big sort of dominating eyebrows. Uh, they, kind, they kind of look like someone stuck, a sh stuck like a sheep head on a dog. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're um, they're actually nice sheep. They're not like we had Texels growing up. Um, there, there is mostly a meat sheep with a bit of wool. Uh, your next one might be a Border Leicester, uh, sometimes called a Blue Leicester. They're very recognisable, like the blue speckling on their face, and then a big Roman nose. I suppose like a domed nose. Oh, yeah, you got a big, big round um, one. 
big yeah, round big, one. big schnoot on them. Uh, so that's it's a very recognizable sheep. They, uh, wow. again, like a meat and wool sheep with slightly probably more desirable wool uh, than Texels. They're also very good mothers. So that's something you're looking at with with sheep, oh, right? Okay. Is, is it is it going to raise its young? Is it going to stick around and look after them? And a board left is good for that, which is why they're used in those mules that I spoke about. Like it's one of the reasons mm. that you crossbreed them with a, with a hill sheep to make them more hardy, right? Um, okay. This one is is a clean um, L L E Y N because uh, you probably wouldn't got that spelling organically. Uh, that that's a Welsh word, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. Uh, but it, it, it's uh, that's a it's a meat sheep. It's it's also got desirable wool. It's also a good mother. They are big. Do- they're like they're big units. Uh, my mum yeah. uh, had those, and um, so when you, one of the things you're going to have to do when you have your sheep is you're going to have to clip their little feet. Uh, otherwise they grow too long just like just like you have to clip your own fingernails right otherwise mm. get, uh, you need to do that so and there's a way to do it by sort of grabbing the front leg and sort of dropping your knee a little bit like you're, you're not just suplexing the sheep uh, in the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a light suplex when you originally talked about hefting I assumed it was something you do with picking the sheep up for some reason yeah. <laughs> the, newer, the newer term is RKOing your sheep <laughs> okay I, yeah also I this lean sheep looks like to me to me the lean sheep is it lean clean clean mm-hmm. yeah that double l sound in welsh is uh it, it comes at you hard it's a interesting yeah. clean mm-hmm. well either way this sheep to me looks like standard sheep you're like run-of-the-mill sheep when i google mm-hmm. sheep this is what i think of yeah that's the ones i was sending you some pictures of yesterday Ah, sometimes i'll send pictures of sheep to the to the group chat um just for the increase and the general love it when sense James of well-being that. mm-hmm. that's the only yeah. time i like the group chat don't tell me <laughs> 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 i'm kidding i'm kidding Am I? I don't know. it's true I'll, I'll, I'll keep it up for you just just for you shereen i'll keep, keep the sheep content coming um you got the jacob sheep which we've spoken Please. about right so that's more of a, a park sheep um it's a rare breed so if you're interested in like a rare breed it's a good thing to do right if you're just a person who's like yeah it'd be cool to have some sheep i have some pasture maybe you want them on on a horse field because horses will mess up the grass on their own um horses will will uh shit in an area and that will kind of sour the grass and mm. horses will then not eat that grass um so horses are not really you know on a great they don't shit where they eat they <laughs> shit where they eat. yeah 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 sheep Bam. on the other hand Boom. will uh, yeah <laughs> The horse knows the sheep doesn't, so uh, sometimes you have a few sheep oh, in no. with horses. They can be companions as well. They, oh, they can be nice oh. companions. You know th- that's where the phrase um, get. You know the phrase gets your goat. Something gets your goat. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, that's where it comes from. Keeping a goat with a horse to keep it company. Nice. Uh, oh. uh, Wait, is a sheep a goat? No, different different animals. Oh, but, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. You're about to Similar. blow my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Similar. I'm sure there's some kind of genus species thing that I don't understand there. Maybe a different species. They're of probably same genus. somewhere, yeah, in the mm-hmm. same tree. Yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah, they're not a million miles apart. Um uh so you've got Dorpers. Uh I think that's a cross between of a Dorset and a Persian. Uh they're they're raised for mutton. So that's if, if you're looking for your mutton, Shireen, that's where you that's where you get that. Um, they have multiple lambs a cool. year, so, so some of these sheep will have can lamb more than once a year. Uh, Herdwick is a good hill breed; they're very hardy. Um, a lot of those are up around my dad, where my dad lives. Um, like I said, there are some rare breeds, um, which if you're interested in like having rare breed sheep just to preserve like a type of sheep, um, because obviously like the 
the more heritage breeds are not as commercially viable. So sometimes they get lost, right? Because they, they, they don't give you a better, a same return on investment. Um, so if you're interested in having sheep just because it's cool and it looks funky, uh, the Rare Breed Survival Trust is a place to like look. Um, I, I used to enjoy going there as a kid and seeing different sheep and uh, learning about... Oh. Like, but that's not a good reason to get a sheep. Is it? Well, if you, if you decide you want to have sheep anyway, right? Let's say you're um, like... I, I didn't want to cast dispersion, so I was going to say a horsey person. Uh, a, a person who owns horses. Um, Word. You know, like if that is your thing and you person. enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, a horse person. Yeah. Like a centaur. Yeah. If you're a centaur. A um, centaur, precisely. Yeah. Mm, if you are half horse, then. Um, you know, you want to you want to have sheep maybe to to check that to to improve your pasture or to not let the horses sour up all the grass. That makes sense. That uh, makes then sense. why not, right? Like why not? Um, because like if you get a if you get a meat sheep, it's going to be bigger. It's going to be more work. If you get a a, a very a sheep that produces a lot of wool, you're going to have to shear that a lot. So maybe you just want a sheep that can kind of cruise uh, and, and be by itself. Right. Then you know why not? Um, yeah. So uh, we're going to talk. Very briefly about what to do when you buy a sheep, uh, and then we're, we're going to pivot to some other things that you can buy, which are not as rewarding as sheep. Yeah, which is which is that's an ad break that we'll do after that, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, Got buddy. It. Understood. Okay. Sorry, I, I missed uh, I missed that part afterwards. I was like, wait, no, James, don't move on quite yet. But yes, I understand now. I understand now. Very well done. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> So when you're buying sheep, I think probably what you want to do is buy some ewes that have already been bred or a couple of ewes with twins. Um, they're, they're a flock animal, right? Like sheep, aren't they don't want to be on their own. So you don't just go and buy like one sheep and be like, yeah, I've got a sheep now. Like that's not very nice. That's not that they'll be insecure and anxious. Yeah. Um, so uh, they, they like to be with other sheep. So um, I think the way we used to do it when I was a kid was to get orphan lambs. And so like... Uh, the, the the mother either rejects the lamb or or she dies um, <gasps> give, giving birth right Whoa. Uh, which can happen uh-huh. um, and we used to uh, then bottle feed those lambs uh, and like you know wh- when they're very little if you go out on the hill do people have argus in America sorry you're yeah. looking at no okay uh, d- like it's a type of oven that like it's always on it's a range cooker oh no. People, no. Are people. No, okay, yeah. I can <laughs> remember, like, right, wait, I don't I know rem- what sheep are if they're goats or not. <laughs> you want me to know if, whatever the fuck you're talking about? No. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's so much learning. It's it's type of oven that uh, like is in old houses and also rich people's houses okay. now. It's become like a trendy thing. Uh, but like way back in the day, I can remember uh, like putting lambs in the bottom oven, which is like warm, but like not cooking warm just like like warm warm when they were very little and they, they uh needed to warm up mm. um so with orphan lambs right you're going to bottle feed them uh, you're going to do the stuff that their mother does for them so that's a lot of work um but you know it, it's a way to get going but they are more fragile when they're young so what i would suggest is buying a couple of ewes that have been bred um and then you just want to uh either like if you go locally to somewhere, then you'll you'll know that this is a type of sheep that can survive and the type of pasture that's near you. This is a type of sheep that can survive in the climate that you have with the food sort of available where you are. Um, so that's, that's probably a good thing. And then, then you just want to check that the sheep has some weight on it, right? And you want to check its teeth, of course, like any livestock. You want to be checking their teeth when you're buying them. Um, and then a thing I've run into... Well, what, what, it, are you, sorry, what are you looking for on the teeth? If they're all fucked up, 
like that sheep is not healthy, right? Like like receding gums uh, or hmm. like kind of if it's much older, that's you can tell you can normally age an animal by looking at its teeth, right? Like if you find a um hmm. if you find a, 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 the remains of an animal, it's one way to see the age Got of it. it. Um, so yeah, you you go to the auction, right? Are you and you do want to check the vaccine status as well. Um, I've only really come across this in the United States uh, recently. Some people were rage posting on the uh, the place I go to to buy chickens. Uh, because I didn't want to buy vaccinated chickens, uh, which is oh just oh like, yeah, yeah, the, fucking the, the animal anti Oh wow, yeah, because <sighs> Bill Gates wants to know what your chicken is thinking, right? Which is why he microchips it. Yeah, absolute <laughs> oh pricks. Um, yeah, if you don't want to buy vaccine, I don't know. Right. Yeah, if you're listening to the show, then this is not a concern of ours. I don't think. But yeah, check the vaccine status <laughs> just in case you got some wahoo trying to sell you some sheep, which are more likely to get sick. Um, so yeah, what what uh, if you uh, I can't fucking come up with an ad. I don't know. If, if you want to buy something that's no use to you and won't give you joy instead of sheep, here are some adverts. Okay, so we're back. And we're still talking about sheep. Uh, we probably will be for quite some time. So on page one. Um, so sheep are actually, they're quite clever. Um, sheep can recognize human faces. They'll know who you are. Um, they've definitely, definitely know that. Um, like, especially the sheep that we bottle fed from when they were babies, right? They definitely knew who we were. Um, and they can be very friendly. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. They'll come up to you and they'll sort of nuzzle you and you can rub them. Aww. Our sheep were polled. That's another thing to think about when you're getting a sheep, right? A polled sheep doesn't have horns. Uh, whereas mm. um, some, some people have horns, some people have more horns. Um, so, uh, yeah, they can recognize your faces. They can learn names. If they have a name, they can learn the name. Um, wow. They also like, know that they're sheep. So, like, uh, I know my mum would just go out and go, like, sheep, and then she'd feed them and they'd come. Um <laughs> Uh, so they're thinking, uh, you know, they they got a positive reinforcement mechanism. Uh, you can train sheep to go on a lead. Um, so another reason you might want to get sheep is you're getting into into showing, right? Uh, a nice thing to do if you, if you you know are strange like me, I suppose, is go to like an agricultural show and look at different types of sheep. I like to do that. Um, it's it's they can be really expensive now because it's also the county fair, and so like people are going in to eat mm. like deep fried stuff. Um, which doesn't interest me as much, but uh, if if you want to go yeah, and see, yeah, yeah, we could go together, Dan. I'll get a, I'll get a super. That sounds saver. perfect. Mm-hmm. It'll we'll be like magical. split up and then meet back at the end. And be like, how was your day? I'm gonna be like, well, <laughs> yeah. it was bad. It was yeah. bad. Yeah, <laughs> hey, you won't be saddled with regret if you look at sheep and indigestion. <laughs> um, so yeah, consider. Yeah, but it's nice to go right. See see the breeds that are popular in your area. See different types of sheep and what people will do. At least uh, I, I've never been to. A, a, like an actual sort of showing sheep i'll just go to the to the san diego county fair and look at the animals but i've not been to a show where you walk around with them in the u.s but uh, I've, i used to do that when i was a kid i think of you know go to the <gasps> village show or whatever and take the sheep and walk Ooh. it around and then they'll judge your sheep right if it's up to the breed standards or what have you um so yeah they can go on a lead they like more of like a halter like around the mm. nose um so not not like a collar um that's the thing that, that you can do. If that's if that interests you, if you want to get into sheep showing, if that's the case, you're going to want to get like a, a pedigree sheep, right? And, and really get into it. You're going to drop some money. Uh, it's not really like, I, we, I was never a, a very serious sheep shower to be clear. It's just a thing for your child to do uh, when you grow up in a rural area. Um, they, uh, they, like I said, they like to be together in groups. They're pretty docile. Like sheep aren't going to fight you. Um, I've definitely, definitely like, when I was at university and stuff, friends would come home and they'd be very scared of the sheep. There's no reason to be scared of sheep. 
Um, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone being hurt by a sheep. I mean, hurt what maybe. about a ram? Yeah, I mean, what they're going to come at you a bit sometimes if they're angry or whatever. But like, it's a sheep. Like, it, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, like, if, I would That's back so you, Shireen, if it came to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you. Yeah. Like, uh, yes. Yeah, so, their horns are mostly like not pointed towards you. Like, mm, I, right. I have been gored by a bull. Right. Like, I, I've experienced yeah. right, uh, right. like livestock-related injury. Sheep is definitely on the list of animals. I'm pretty sure I could take. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. This next fact is fascinating to me. Can we get to this fact? Yeah, sure. So definitely, if you're thinking of breeding, getting rams, uh, about like eight eight percent uh, are going to be gay. It's just a thing that's going to happen, right? Uh, <laughs> gay sheep, gay sheep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you wait till we get to the next one. Yeah, it's just a thing, right? You're going to get a sheep that's gay. It, it's it's a natural part of uh, the diversity of any species. I kind of definitely know people <laughs> yeah. have spent a lot of money on pedigree rams and they've turned out to be gay. It's <laughs> it's what it is, right? Like, I love that. Get to me about this weird, stupid American. It's not just an American thing, but this, like, oh, it's not natural, whatever. Like, I don't know. Anyone who's worked with livestock in their life will, for, for a, a number of years, will tell you that they've come across a gay sheep uh, or cow or what have you. Um, some, you're also going to get sometimes um, some sheep are called free martins. Uh, it's a trans mask sheep uh, for the most part. It actually has some biological differences. <laughs> Um, so like, yeah, it, what it is, is there's a female that's been accompanied, uh, so like they're twins or triplets or quads sometimes, uh, that has been accompanied by a male fetus in utero. So they behave in a mas masculine way and they might lack functioning ovaries. Um, yeah, you're going to get those two, right? So they're going to be a bit more aggro, like a ram, a bunion stuff, but, um, it's just a thing. It's part of natural diversity and species. You're going to see it. You know, you, you might have a gay sheep. Lucky you, right? Uh, you know, cherish it. Uh, take it, you know, be nice to it. So white fleeces, right? Generally, when we think of sheep, but Dana was saying, you're going to think of a white fleece. That's uh, that wild sheep are often brown, right? It's, uh, being white is not a great camouflage trait. So when we see a uh, when we see a white sheep, that's because it's generally been selected, right? So when you looked at the Jacob sheep, they they were piebald, right? They had bits of brown on them on the white fleece. Being white, however, appears to be a dominant trait, so it's spread very quickly. Um, and then if you, if you're looking at the wool of a sheep, you want to consider if you want fine, medium, or coarse wool, long wool sheep, right? They, if you look up sheep with long wool, there's some amazing. Uh, breeds out there um those are mostly for breeding to get more desirable wool characteristics like long wool sheep mm. uh, it's going to be quite hard to uh, look after that sheep right stop its wool getting matted and stuff um so now we're going to get it to fencing so it's an important topic uh so uh you want your fencing to be about chest high obviously it depends on your height like if you're a smaller person a bit higher whatever uh but like we would generally use post and rail fencing um you don't see that as much in, in the US, but uh, the name's pretty self-explanatory, right? Bang in a post, rail across the middle, bang in a post, rail across the middle. Um, oh. And then you're going to want some netting. Uh, you don't have to use, like with chickens, we talked about using construction netting, right? Like very thin wire, just so that like uh, things like snakes and rats don't get in. With sheep, you don't need that. The, um, you can go with a, a, a wider mesh, probably four or five inches across, mm. Um and it, that's going to be cheaper for you as you're building the fence. Um, you can also use electric fences and you can use those to rotate the pasture, which is a good idea. So the sheep kind of graze one area, then you move them across to another area. That area recovers. You move the sheep to the next area. They graze that area where the other areas recover. Okay. Sure, you learned about this in Lesson school, surely, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, surely. I'm curious, how does the electric fencing do that? Are you constantly moving it? And is that just like when the sheep touch it, they're like, oh, not that way and go back? Like, what is electric <laughs> yeah, fencing do for that? The, Oh, okay, they're not thick. They'll touch it once, and then they won't go maybe twice. And well, yeah, no, I mean precisely. Yeah. Um, but so, how is it doing that? It's so the electric fences are like plastic posts that you stick in the ground, and then it has a metal spike on the end, and then it's got this. It's about that wide, about an inch wide. It's a it's a oh. ribbon with little metal bits in it, and you the post has a way of securing that ribbon to it, so you can move that fencing around. Okay, um, cool. So, so yeah. the reason I mean, it, it it being electrified is kind of like secondary it's mostly that it's a movable fence post that's why you're using it for the grazing purposes yeah it doesn't have the same um the same structure as a normal fence so it it has Mm -hmm. gaps which a sheep probably could slip through if it was just wire Mm -hmm. because it's electric it's not going to try and nuzzle its way through because right right. it's going to get shot so if you're using electric fence just like uh the you know the classic way to tell if it's on right is, is you pick up a piece of grass and then you just touch the fence with the grass um because the grass is a poor conductor, you're going to feel a little bit say, of a shock. Are you but trolling right now? No, 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 no for real. No, this, this is what you do. Uh, like, uh, yeah, no, you touch it with a piece of grass, and uh, that's gonna you're going to get like a, a slight like tingle, but you're not going to get a full whack. Like, uh, it, growing yeah. up, we had electric fences all over the place. Right, I've run into them when I was a kid and, and taken a, a whack, or like the, you know the posts have a big spike on the end, so that's very fun to throw at your friends. Mm. Uh, uh, if you know cool. you cause lasting injury uh but um yeah it's, electric fencing is handy uh you just hook it up to a car battery basically so you Perfect. like yeah no it's a, it's a good way to segment your field if you have one field you know if you're not rotating the sheep did you really not learn about field rotation sorry i'm constantly amazed by the things that i did in school that americans don't do <laughs> not at school. all Ag- no. agriculture in no, any yeah. capacity yeah there was no agriculture well, training i mean at least the in my only school, farm like, i saw was on like the tub of butter yeah like that's literally what the so mics i, I drove past farms yeah. I, th- I think i grew up closer than you two did which i had a corn from my backyard and they were okay i, I we didn't have agricultural ed- education at like my school but like there were schools that like i went to to do like play chess just glassy well, I, don't know. I was i was a nerd mm-hmm. but yeah. like there, there 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 were lots of schools that like did stuff like that because they were in like more rural parts of illinois Mm-hmm. So that yeah. is a thing here. I think it's just uh, we didn't go up in the <laughs> agricultural relations. I think I learned it in the context of like the enclosure of the commons and the four field rotation and like using legumes to fix nitrogen in the soil. Um, what? Again, okay, no. blank. You learned I, I, all blank, of that? Blank faces. I learned that in yeah. college. Yeah. Okay, no, okay, well, yeah. Different strokes for different folks. Uh, I, you know, That's at wild. me on twi- Twitter.com if you learned about legumes in school. Um, so to, to be clear, you fed, would have yeah. preferred to learn about that. Just to be clear, yeah. same, like algebra same. two, forget it. I would much rather yeah. learn about lagoons. Whenever you use algebra, not Don. Someone else is using yeah. it, but you know, you could, yeah. Think of what you could be doing with nitrogen right now. If you, uh, if you were growing some peas. There, yeah. uh, what in, if in, incredible things? Yeah. Um, so with your sheep, uh, depending on the breed, you're going to need shelter, right? So that shelter could be something like a copse, uh, a little copse of trees. Um, that's a small, it's big, smaller than a wood uh, is a copse. Uh, so you're going to need a decent amount of trees for them to shelter. Some will need more shelter than others, right? Depending on how hardy they are. Um, some of them will want to lamb inside um, and some of them 
are able to lamb outside, uh, but they, they all will need some shelter in foul weather, right? Um, you'll see that they're very good at like knowing where to shelter, but they, you got you can't just leave them out. Like when I'm in agricultural states in America where these giant prairies, you know, that you don't have hedgerows in the same way that, mm-hmm. that we did where I grew up, um, then you if you are there and you're trying to have some sheep, you're going to need to build a little shelter for them. Um, is and it, in colder, ask a question about the shelter. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it what's what's the shape of the shelter? Is it kind of like is it like a house? Is it more like barn like? It so it's depending on the breed. No, not like barn. You have a barn to bring them in. Like so, we used to okay. lamb inside, right? And then you just use pallets to divide it up, and and the pallets you put each of you in there with her lambs. Um, okay, uh, and we'll get on to so my that. All um, cops are barns. Joke is not going to happen. Okay, <laughs> sorry, Daniel. <laughs> no problem. Uh, That's okay. I've let you down again. Um, That's okay. It's not on you. But yeah, you'll see all kinds of things. You'll see. <laughs> thanks. You'll see it like people just build little stone shelters. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a prevailing wind that uh-huh. like rips through and it's cold wind, then you know you might want to build something just to shelter them from that prevailing wind. But they they just oh, yeah. you know if it's like a big undifferentiated prairie. And especially lambs, right? They're more fragile because they're younger. And sometimes you'll see the lambs wearing the little coats, um, little little jackets that they can Aww. wear. Um, Love you, that. Yeah. You can Google that. Uh, just like Google lambs, orange jacket. Um, oh. And you can get these little little plastic jackets for them. But they, you, do, you do need to be cautious with lambs when they're young. Sometimes, like I say, you'll, you'll have them inside. Um, thing with sheep uh, regarding feeding is that they are ruminants. Uh, do we know what ruminant animals are? No, no, yes, absolutely, no. massively fail by your educations. Um, it's <laughs> a, 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 a ruminant, it chews the cud. Um, so when, it, when ah. it eats the food, right, it goes to the rumen and then uh, it holds the food, the food's regurgitated. What are you saying? <laughs> what, are you, what are these? Oh, it's like a cow, it has like multiple stomachs, yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, like, like the it's rumen, not... like the first stomach, yeah. Uh, okay. So the room okay. is a big stomach, right? And it's in there that uh, it's like a storage space, really. Uh, so the food goes in there, chills for a bit, and then it's regurgitated, chewed back up, and then re-swallowed. And that is the cud. That's chew- that, that process the, is called the chewing cud. the cud. Yeah, chewing the cud. Now mm-hmm. is the right. So so is that entire process <laughs> chewing the cud, like it going into the ruminant and then being regurgitated, or is it strictly just the chewing that happens before they eat it again? I th- it, well, it's, it's a chewing that happens when they eat it again, right? So, like the the first Fair. eating, it's just eating. The second eating, right. it's chewing. Shireen's having it's a physical cut. reaction. It's <laughs> <laughs> gnarly. It is gnarly. It's extremely gnarly. That's how they get the most out of like this relatively lean pasture, right? It's a very clever adaption. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's how uh, that's how sheep eat. So that means that they need to have access to pasture. Um, they also need lots of water. Um, so you, you, again, if you're in like a desert place, I, I should ask Navajo folks. I know Navajo folks. I should ask them how they do it with their churro sheep because it's not, not a densely watered place there. Um, but generally, they, they need access to water. I'm sure they have, they have places where they have good access to water. And then, you, like I said, you do want to rotate them around, right? You can feed them. You can supplement with like hay or haylage or silage, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I, I, you shouldn't rely, like, you can't keep your feet sheep in a place where there's no pasture really you don't want to be feeding them all year they need varied pasture right with different things you know clovers and and, and grasses and um the stuff that's poisonous for them so that there are different weeds that are poisonous for them you're just going to want to 
it depends where you live, right? If you're listening to this in the UK, it's different to North America, probably different to South right. America. So you, you'll want to check that out again when you're buying a sheep. You can ask these kind of questions and go ahead and pull those out. Um, so so you can you can feed them grain, but uh, you really only want to do that sort of during or just before lambing. Uh, it can lead to overfeeding. It, it's too rich for them, right? Like they're designed with this ruminant system to you know have these green leafy things. Um, people can use uh, bagged feeds too. Uh, you know, again, you don't want to rely on those the whole time. They're expensive. Don't use cow food. Uh, like bagged cattle food, it's not going to work for sheep. Um, and they need a, a like a mineral lick too. Um, so, you're, like, I'm sure you're all familiar with salt licks. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's it's a similar thing, right? Hell um, yeah. It, they'll just come up and lick that. They know when they need the oh. salt or the minerals. They just they just they they know. So they'll just come come and lick it. Um, so you just put that out in the field. It's pretty chill. Um, don't let. So a big problem we had was like we had some sheep in the field next to our house. They were our sheep. They were someone else's sheep. But like forever getting into the garden, mainly because I'm terrible at closing gates and doors. Um, and and so they would get into the garden. You do want to be careful. They will go ham. Like it is the time of their lives when they get in your garden and they can eat all your plants. But um, you do want to watch out for things like rhododendron, which can be dangerous to them and um, they can be poisonous so if you've got stuff in your garden either don't have stuff that's poisonous to sheep or or be aware um you know if they're getting in there head to the rhododendrons and head them off at the pass um shireen would, would you like to insert your well just as you're you're just the shepherd and we are the herd <laughs> following you and so to everyone that wants to be a sheep listen to these ads we're back, uh, my sheeple. We're back. And... <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. Unparalleled. How that sounded. Yeah. <laughs> we need Dan on more podcasts. This kind of pun Aww. energy is magical. Um, so yeah, shearing, right? Shearing sheep, a very important mm-hmm. part of having sheep. Um, so this can be hard to master if you're trying to get the wool off in like a full fleece, which is ideally how you want to do it, right? You don't. You're not just like. It's not like when you go to the barbers, you know. And they just go at you and there's hair on the floor. You're looking to take it off as a complete fleece. And there's a technique to that. Um, it's, it's, you're just not going to fucking get it straight away. Like you're going to have to learn or you're going to have to pay someone to do it. Uh, I don't really know how that works in America again, because like there's not such a density of sheep. So maybe there's not someone who does it. Um, and lots of this stuff, like getting your ewes ultrasounded when they're pregnant. Not sure how, how you go about that um, in an affordable manner in the United States. Like if you have a large animal vet, you can ask them, but. You do want to do that, right? To check that how many lambs you've got and stuff. Um, of course, but but uh, yeah. So if I guess you're just going to have to learn or give it a try. Like as long as you're not hurting the sheep, if you're taking it off in clumps, I suppose it's not that bad. Just you know, you don't want to be nipping and hurting the, the sheep itself when you're shearing, right? Um, and that's just like if you uh, if you're a person who shaves or um, you know cuts your own hair or what have you. You know, it's not pleasant if you nick the skin. Um, yeah. So, Do sheep need to get rid of the hair? Yes. Uh, but then so, how, if we didn't exist, how would they do that? Well, we wouldn't Great have question. bred them selectively to have such dense and long fleeces if we didn't exist. Right. So there are hair sheep, which, which have hair instead of wool, mm. and, and those sheep don't need, to, um, don't need to be shorn. But because for centuries we've bred them to be woollier, because we like the mm. wool, then now we have we've made our bed and we have to lie in it, right? Like we, uh, 
the sheep depend on us and we depend on the sheep. It, it's, like, it's like the yin and yang and, you know, of sheep husbandry. The yin and yang that, uh, that we created without their permission. Yeah, yeah, right. yes, yeah, right. yeah. The sheep, the sheep the is not leaning into this. that has been forced <laughs> upon them. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's not a, uh, not a uh, consensual relationship. Um, right. So, yeah, what will happen, Shireen, if you don't shear them? And some, some you'll need to do twice a year, some once a year, some you won't at all if they're hair sheep, right? But um, they'll get, like, matted wool, so, like, the, the, like the poo and other things will, like, kind of, like just if you, like, if you don't wash your hair for a long time, you know, it gets kind of knotted and matted. Got um, it, got it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, and also they can get overheat. Say right? no more, say no more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want, you want me to go further? Uh, no. Yeah, so. I mean, that makes sense, though, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know how you sell wool in the USA. Uh, you know, just get on Etsy and do something with it if, if you want to sell it. I suppose. Um, you know, learn to learn to spin. Get a spinning wheel. You learn to card, card the wool, and then spin it, and then uh, knit it, and then sell it. I suppose or keep things for yourself. It'd be fun. You know, if you have free time. What is carding? Yeah, it's when you're like like taking the wool and like like combing it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like pulling it. Ah. Um, I'm not super familiar with stuff. I remember again. Uh, see, it's just a different world, isn't it? See, we we would go to like the Black Country Museum when I was a kid in school. Um, uh-huh. Not 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 a racial thing. Um, it's just a bit. Uh, it's it's a part of um, it's part of Britain where uh, there was a lot of industry, uh, and one of the things they would do was like, oh, this is how people used to to do wool. Um, you know, like the spinning. Uh, Jenny and, and like before that, like in cottage industry when people would make it at home. Okay. Or like when you okay. go to the Rare Breed Survival Trust, I bet, I, think, I bet they'll let you do some spinning or carding when you're going there. Or, um, I, I got a quick explanation for you. Got a quick explanation mm-hmm. for you. So uh, if for those folks at home who have uh, hairy animals, you know those kind of like brushes that have fine little metal bristles on them and you're brushing, you just take off like a huge clump of hair. Now imagine that you take a... Mm-hmm. Imagine you take a fresh piece of wool straight off of the sheep and you put it on there and then you just kind of tease it out to form it into what looks more like like raw wool that you're used to as opposed mm-hmm. to looking like it was just taken off a sheep. You're turning into the raw wool that will then be spun. Um, I'm looking at it right now and uh, mm-hmm. it looks absolutely exhausting. Yes, fun. Sorry. Yes, fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fun. Good thing to do. You know, like uh, get... Once Twitter inevitably collapses, we can return uh, with a V to, to tradition yes. and, and do this sort of stuff yes. instead. Uh, there you and, go. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Elon Musk and all Be the other texting alpha everybody videos. male return I'm to sure. tradition people already do it. Um, it's <laughs> nice for your hands. It's very nice for your hands, just generally handling, because they have lanolin, right? Lanolin, this kind of natural, I think it's like a soap thing. Like a, It makes lathering, but it's very good for softening your skin, so... You'll see. You'll notice it's nice for your hands when you're handling the sheep, right? Um, you'll notice that's nice hand feeling. Um, it's not expensive, like hand cream. Uh, you're gonna have to make sure that you trim your sheep's hooves. So, depending on your size and the sheep size and, and your sort of skill um, handling sheep, uh, you might want to get a sheep flipper. Uh, we got one for my mum a couple of years ago. It's just a, it's just a device that helps you turn the sheep so that you can clip its hooves. Um, <gasps> instead of just getting in there with the knee and link. there's a way to do it. And a lot of this stuff you can learn on YouTube. Like uh, I've, I checked before this and there's definitely videos on how to turn them over and um, clip the hoofs. So um, yeah, you, you can give it a try. That doesn't work. You can get a sheep flipper. 
um you, you you sort of yeah you sort of drop your knee into it and turn it over um i'm so happy that there is an advice that exists called the sheep flipper <laughs> <laughs> like, this has made my day immeasurably better oh yeah 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 i'll send you some videos um there's, there's some good videos of me uh trying to turn my mum's sheep like so we can clip their hooves and it, it was like wet and slippery and me just fetching myself on my ass instead and uh, sheep just like making a bid for freedom um so yeah you watch a couple of videos you can work it out and if that doesn't work for you you can get a sheep sheep flipper you're gonna have to do things like dipping and deworming your sheep too right so you're um you, the wormer you just put in their mouth it's like a little it goes in the mouth and you squeeze um it looks a bit like a gun i suppose or like a it's like a little tiny pipe like maybe a quarter of an inch size of your pinky and it goes in and you press thing and it dispenses a dose it just kind of just gets it behind their tongue so they don't spit it out dispenses a bit of wormer gun was the uh, perfect word to use for my americanized brain i'm, I'm totally with yeah you i thought yeah yeah i was gonna you know i was thinking gun hot dog bald eagle yeah. what reference right. um, would you understand um right so uh you know you're gonna also have to dip your sheep to prevent things like scab um and so that's just literally when the sheep uh dipped in in this stuff that sort of cleans them right um so uh, you, there are mobile sheep dips, or you can just go to a sheep dip, take take a sheep to a sheep dip, and do it there. Again, I'm not. I've, I've never seen one in the US. I'm sure there are some, um, but I, I'm, I'm I'm not sure how you do this. I think you can also spray them for this, um, and you'll want to check obviously what kind of dips are legal. legal. Um, and you don't want to be dipping them with cuts. So, like, if you have just been through your shearing and you've cut them up, that's not a good time to do it. And you don't want to dip thirsty sheep either, uh, for obvious reasons, right? Because what they're going into is not something you want to be <laughs> drinking. Um, so, predation. Predation's uh, an interesting topic. Uh, sheep are not really great at defending themselves. Um, they just kind of big floofs. They can sort of butt a little bit with their heads, and then they do do that. Um, and they'll defend their their uh, their little lambs. And when we were little and we had dogs, if the dog, when it was a puppy, would chase sheep, you could put the dog in a little pen with a ewe and her lambs, and the ewe would be like, "Hey, get away, get away, get away, leave my lambs mm. alone." And that then the dog would would be less likely to chase sheep again because it's had this probably not great to give the dog a traumatic experience and the ewe, I suppose, um, but. <laughs> They'll defend their, their lambs like that. But, you know, when you've got, especially if you're in North America, right, you've got like mountain lions, you've got coyotes, you've got uh, bobcats, you've got all kinds of bigger stuff than I'm used to. Um, so a couple of options there. Um, you've got guardian animals, right? So something like a llama, a donkey, uh, or like a livestock guardian dog. Um, <laughs> me is enjoying the idea of a guardian donkey. Um, but, you know, the couple of different benefits to each one right? llama llama can be pretty mean and um, i'm sure you guys have seen <laughs> them like uh, i've been spat on by a few llama and mm. uh, they'll spit yeah, right and then they'll kick yeah <laughs> then they're bitey and it's just really sort of obnoxious um creatures but uh they, yeah they don't mess about so those are decent uh you know it looks like one of the sheep is just wildly deformed if it's running around with the sheep um you can get a donkey. Donkeys also quite defensive and very loud. So, you know, if your sheep are in, in a field near your house and you have a donkey, it's going to kick off at night. Something happens, making its characteristic donkey noises, and, and that will give you a chance to, uh, to uh, respond. And then you've got your livestock uh, guardian breeds, right? Like, like Pyrenees um, is, is a great example. 
um, people will probably have seen my pictures of the Stacia's Unicorn Ranch. They have uh, Pyrenees dogs. Um, very helpful, actually, when you're being attacked by bigots because uh, the dogs dogs will bark. Um, but guardian dogs are like inherently they want to guard your sheep. Like, so they'll just go out there and they'll you know move among the flock and they'll bark and, and run off any um, attackers. And they're very, they're good. it's entirely in their breeding to do it. Um, it's very funny, actually, because chuds have this, like, I'm a sheepdog thing, you know, when, when they walk around with, like, five knives and, and two guns and a pepper mm-hmm. spray. Uh, and then they always have a picture of Border Collie. Border, that is not what a Border Collie does. A Border Collie is, like, a, <laughs> a dog with extreme anxiety that is obsessed with collective security and uh, will just, like, Border Collies naturally herd things, right? So I'm sure, like, you've seen, uh, have people seen, like, One Man His Dog, the TV program? No, nope. okay. no, again, uh, used to be on a Sunday night <laughs> when I was little. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a competition, a, she, a sheep herding with dogs competition. Um, Wait, that rules. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Perhaps uh, one of the more I've met American people who do this competitively, uh, uh, but um, cool. I think it's more of a, a hobby than than a way of life. But uh, yeah, so if you you can Google one man is dog and watch different competitions, uh, obviously it's not gendered uh and it can be a person and their dog um but um yeah that's what border collies do right they herd the sheep and when they're little like you can start them out with herding chickens or ducks in your in your uh like if you have a farmyard they'll they'll go out there and herd ducks just by themselves they want to do it um they're just in their breeding but a, a guardian dog does not do that it, it just protects but i think like this is one of the things that we spoke about with with chickens right like if you want to have sheep you're probably going to have to either like, well, if, if you're not willing to defend them from predators, you probably shouldn't have them because it's a bit mean to just put them out there as like coyote bait um, or lion bait or whatever. Uh, like you might have to shoot something that looks like a dog if you don't want your sheep to die. And, and like, it's just how it's going to go down, you know, like uh, it, it's uh, like not everyone has to have livestock. I'm not a person who eats animals. So, like it, it's. I mean, uh, I think similar to chickens. Most people shouldn't have chickens or sheep. Like, you know what I mean? The vast majority of people, in my opinion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are better off not doing that. Just because, like, I don't think people realize the responsibility, even with all this information. I think some people mm-hmm. get too, um, they jump the gun, for lack of a better fucking term. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, don't be rushing into getting livestock. Like, it's, a, it's very... Um, like I've seen people do that before. I've seen people do the whole like, um, you know, I'll quit my job as a banker and come and live on a farm thing. And like, I don't know, just don't like, go go and work on someone's farm, right? If you want to do that, yeah. and learn. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't grow up in this, like, there are a million things that I'm not telling you, and I'm forgetting to tell you that I take for granted. Uh, and like, uh, it it just it takes time and it's complicated and um and sometimes it's very sad, right? Like I said, sheep get sick and they die, and that's sad, and they get predated and that's very sad when lambs get predated it's really sad so like i don't know like it's not for everyone uh it's certainly having a flock of sheep is quite a big pit and you can't like you know you can't just be like oh right i'm off to um well you need Tenerife land too right mm-hmm. i don't yes, think a lot of people yeah. have the land even necessary for that so i don't know yeah anyway a, a few acres i'm so passionate about this that i actually have to go now um okay <clears throat> <laughs> I'm, Bye, I'm Shireen. Kidding. Believe it. Yes. Okay.
I have to record something else with That's this voice. Okay. So yeah. Uh, until next time. Yeah. Keep on podcasting. Bye, Bye Shereen. Talk Bye. soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's funny. Okay, we're going to briefly cover lambing, and then we're uh, we can be done. Uh, so, uh, like I said, you can you can pick up orphan lambs. A good way to add to your flock. Um, the thing with uh, little baby lambs is when when they're first born, right? If the mother is either won't feed them, sometimes she won't feed them, uh, or if it, she dies. Um, they're going to need what's called colostrum. Um, familiar with colostrum? That name sounds more familiar. No. I feel like <laughs> no, I've it was, I'm looking it up. Briefly, it was like an athletic performance supplement tread, but like it's um, it's mm-hmm. the milk that comes in the first 24 hours. It's extra rich. Oh. Um, mm. So they'll need... Yeah, or, or from whatever animal, right? And any mammal, right. I would imagine. Um, milk produced by the memory glands of humans and other mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. Yeah, yeah, that's a better <laughs> summary than I made. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Thank you, Wikipedia. Yeah, always. Um, so they're going to need about 500 mils on the first day. That's about a pint. Um, it's, uh, you want it to be warm, so you can buy frozen colostrum. You can buy powdered colostrum, uh, but you don't want to microwave it. The colostrum has some antibodies in it, which um, help the little sheep's uh, like stomach, I suppose, get ready for the world. Um, so that's why you don't want to microwave it. Um, so generally, they're pretty easy to bottle feed. Like the, if you stick your finger in, the lamb will just like start sucking on that. It's a good sign that it, it's it, you know it's ready to bottle feed and it's easy to bottle feed. Uh, so like you can sometimes do that as kind of a way to lure them in and then start bottle feeding them. Uh, sometimes you have to sort of rub them a bit to get them to feed. Um, and then uh, they they like to have their milk powder, if, they, if you're doing powdered milk, right, if, with these orphan lambs, about every four hours. Um, and you're just going to gradually increase the amount you feed them. Uh, and, you know, they'll need things like a heat lamp, right, uh, to keep them warm because they don't have that big uh, heat sink of their mum bedding and water and and, um you know a bit later you can it's a bit easier right you can get a bucket with teats so you just you're literally screwing the teats that go on a milk bottle onto the onto the bucket instead so they can drink out of that um but um it's a lot of work getting off a lambs like they'll want to eat about every four hours it doesn't matter if you're sleeping they they still want to eat so like i can remember doing that a lot when i was little um and uh you can get uh like once the lamb gets a bit older, you're going to want to do things like uh, you might want to castrate it, depending. You might want to dock its tail, depending. You might want to vaccinate it, or you do want to vaccinate it. Um, but also, like, they need time to be social with other sheep. So, like, you can't just get one orphan lamb and raise it like some kind of sheep person. Like, they need to play with other sheep. They need to time to run around. Um, uh, they can be quite fun. Like, they'll follow you around often. The little orphan sheep, like you can sort of run around and they'll follow you around, so that's kind of fun. Um, and then you do eventually, like if you, especially if you're raising a lot of orphan lambs, you're going to have ram lambs, right? And and so you're either going to have to castrate those or sell them um, because you're you're going to create an issue of inbreeding within your flock. Otherwise, if you, mm. if you just if you just keep all the lambs, right? Um, and so that's the thing to think about if you're going to have sheep. At some point, you're either going to need to buy more or breed them. And if you're going to breed them, what are you going to do with the ram lambs? Um, so you, you can castrate them, they become weathers, and that's generally where meat comes from, that, that people eat. 
and if you don't want to participate in that, uh, you're just going to pass it on to someone else, right? You, mm. you know, the, the, uh, unfortunately, this is you know, commercial agriculture. Even if right. you don't eat meat, like it's about killing animals, uh, right. which is why I don't like to do that. Um, yeah, so with lambs, um, when you've got pregnant ewes, you'll want to scan them, see how many lambs there are. That helps you make feeding decisions for the pregnant ewe. Um, that's uh, sort of when you can uh, look at um, like how many lambs are coming, right? how much does she need to eat. Uh, and then once you've done this, you want to get your barn ready for lambing. Just put. We used to use pallets. You know, pallets, things come on when you buy like a lot of sheep food for instance you know it comes on a pallet with a forklift can get under you can just use those to separate out little stalls for them to lamb in put some straw in there um and then when they lamb uh, just because again they've been bred selectively for so long they can sometimes struggle struggle to deliver um and it, if you're of the means to do so having a vet of course is lovely right like a large animal vet um but generally people who are farming commercially don't have the the resources to do that it's just it's just not doesn't fit with you know the cost of doing that so you mostly do it yourself like i've done it a lot you um you'll want to get yourself a full arm glove like a full plastic glove uh i guess like a sleeve glove and then you can you can do a lot in terms of like turning the lamb around if it's coming out the wrong way or uh, helping the delivery mm-hmm. um I, i'll leave you to google that uh on your own time um but I think you I'm just need google to google that one no it's a i think yeah it's a miracle of life daniel um <laughs> Then you just <laughs> beautiful in its own thing. ways. Beautiful in its own ways. Yeah, it's really sweet when you get the lamb out and you're like, oh yeah, I turned it around and it's and it, it pops up and it does a little shake and it stands on its little feet. It's very sweet. It's kind of amazing compared to human babies. Human babies come out and like I've seen a few human babies and they're just like not particularly useful or capable in in their early <laughs> life. But lambs come out and they like they get up and they can run around and they can suckle and like you know within twenty four hours they're they're like a functional tiny sheep. Um, so that that's kind of nice. So you do want to when they when they're uh, when they're born right you just sort of get into their little little nose and mouth area and just clear that from anything that might be blocking it just so they can breathe. Um, you can use a bit of straw to get into their little nostrils, um, just just to sort of get any any mucus or whatever out. Um, and then you cut the umbilical cord up, and disinfect that just with some iodine. Um, I think you can see actually. Though I sent you one picture of a lamb last night where it's you can see where it's been disinfected and its umbilical cord. Um, uh, sometimes you you just want to strip a couple of like you just want to check that the you can give milk. Sometimes the teats can get plugged up when they're pregnant. So you just go, give it a little. It'll squeeze. Um, yeah, so then, then within a week, you're going to want to do things like docking tails and castrating. Um, some some breeds can lamb outside, uh, but some can't. So again, this is all stuff to consider when you're trying to buy your sheep, right? Um, the last thing I've got about lambing is sometimes the ewes will reject the lamb. You can either try and like hold the ewe in place so the lamb can suckle, uh, or if she's really hurting them, then you take them away and then you have to look after them yourself. And then they become your little friends, and you can give them names. Oh. Yeah, it's very sweet. Uh, <laughs> Fun. Like I said, <laughs> unfortunately, sad, like but then also sweet. Yeah, yeah, right. Like I, this is a thing with commercial agriculture, right? Like it's uh, the nature of the thing. Like if you're if you have cattle, what are you going to do with the with the uh, you know any male offspring of any species, right? Even if you just had the sheep and you want to have them for milk cool but like they're not going to continue lactating for their whole life so they're going to have to have lambs 
and that they're going to have to have lambs. You're going to have to decide what you want to do with the ram lambs. And so it, it's a difficult thing. It's not for everyone. But yeah, sheep, wonderful creatures, very friendly. Uh, you know, if you're walking past, you could you could see if someone's trained them to, to come to the word sheep just by shouting sheep at them. Uh, <laughs> and if not, you know, passers-by will think you've correctly identified the species. So <laughs> <laughs> big dub for you either way. Uh, yeah, it, the sheep is a wonderful animal. Uh, they're very friendly. Of all the farm animals, I think they're my favorite. And just growing up around them. If you're small, like, you know, only do it if you're a very little human. Probably not old enough to listen to some of the content we broadcast. Uh, if you're aged, want to be in like single digits, but you can ride them. Um, you can sort of sit on them, <gasps> fold on their shoulders, and ride them around. Wow, really? Um, the, the, it's, it's not a controlled experience. Like, it's just going to run <laughs> because it doesn't. Doesn't want you on its back, and it you know it might not be very nice for the sheep thinking about it, but uh, yeah, there many <laughs> many wonderful things you can do with sheep. They're very rewarding to have, I will say, but yeah, it's sad. It's also a, a difficult thing. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's something to consider. If you if you do milk them, they make good cheese. I think that that is the primary reason that people dairy sheep is for cheese. I don't think many right. people are drinking sheep milk, and um, you know. Please don't let me know if you are. It's fine. I'm happy for you. Uh, there's no need. To, there's no need to share. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, sheep. The uh, every every wool pair of socks, every wool jumper that you have, every uh, sheep's cheese that you eat comes from these wonderful animals. Now you know a little more about. And you can get sheep soap too. That's my last plug for this. Uh, sheep soap looks like a sheep, uh, but in the middle of it, it's soap. It's, yeah, it's very good for washing your hands. Um, maybe one day we will have. Cool Zone Media sheep soap for you to buy. Yeah, I saw pictures of it, and it was uh, that's a pass for me. But uh, you know what? There's a lot of people out there who love merch, so all, all more power, more power to them. Yeah, disappointing, Daniel. Anti sheep action. <laughs> but yeah, put, post pictures of your sheep uh, and tag me on various social media. Someone, some people already do. Uh, but yeah, that, that's about all I got on sheep. And any sheep questions before we go? I mean. You know, no. I will say each new sheep fact brought up another sheep question, but uh, I think you did a great mm -hmm. job of explaining uh, owning sheep, taking care of sheep, rearing sheep, lambing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I've I've come away uh, with a, with a with a whole bale full of knowledge about sheepies. <laughs> Mia, what about you? Yeah, I've I've learned. I've there's the sheep flippers. I can't get sheep over flippers you. Is great. The sheep, sheep flippers sideways. is great. Yeah, RKOing your sheep to to shoot them is great. Yeah, you, we can do one where you teach me what an RKO is, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will teach you by showing you, as opposed to performing it. But yes, I will. I will definitely, okay. definitely teach you. Yeah, that's, that's our next live show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but yeah, enjoy the stuff that you now know about sheep, everyone. Yes. And uh, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, find us on the internet at Cool Zone Media or mm -hmm. it, it, I, yep. it Could Happen Here Pod, right? I never do this. Happen part Here show, Pod? But I know it needs to happen. Happen Here Pod. Yeah. That's what mm -hmm. it is. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Put it, cool. put it into the search engine of your choice. It'll come up. Uh, do you guys want to plug anything before we leave? Mia, you go first. Oh, I got nothing. I, uh, I got, I got, uh, Elon Musk got me, so I don't have social media anymore. There you go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're in the U.S., check out Navajo Chura Sheep. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Navajo Chura Sheep Association. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to support, um, 
indigenous folks. The rest of us would oh, be yeah. sheep farming on stolen land. So, <laughs> facts. Yeah. It's all stolen yeah. land. Everything we're doing is all stolen land. Uh, mm -hmm. You can check me out on Twitch. I'm twitch.tv slash DJ underscore Daniel. That's it. Magic. Thank you, Daniel. Cool. All right. Send it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a Solo Mia episode of It Could Happen Here, the podcast where things fall apart, and sometimes we put them back together. I'm your host, Mia Wong, and today we are going to be talking about why the rent is so high. Now, okay, there's, there's a lot of, of sort of ways that you could, in theory, approach this question. And I decided that I, I think one of the most useful approaches to it is you take a sort of a more a more sort of historical and theoretical approach. And I think the start of any kind of sort of theoretical approach to rent is by asking what rent actually is. And the answer to this, and, and this is something that is that is relatively consistent across most of sort of classical political economy, and, and you see this in some of sort of neoclassical economics, is that the thing that's special about rent is that rent, unlike, you know, anything else, 
is money that you get because you own something, not because you, you know, have produced anything. And this means that, you know, the landlord does not produce anything of value at all. All they do is extract value from other sectors of the economy. Now, this has a wide, wide variety of sort of political and social effects. Marx saw the landowning class as an obstacle to the development of capitalism. And this is an idea, the idea that, again, landowners specifically as a class that is different from the sort of capitalist class or the working class hinders the growth of capitalism is an idea that a lot of different people across the basically the entirety of the political spectrum have shared at various times. And this causes some very, very strange alliances, particularly in places like Latin America, where you still have economies that are, you know, not entirely based, but economies that have enormous landowners who drive sort of vast portions of both the economy and of the sort of political process. And in Latin America, and, and this is true in a lot of other places, it, it was not uncommon for you to get what's known as developmentalism, which is an ideology based on using essentially protectionist measures, things like tariffs, sometimes capital controls, restrictions on kinds of investment that foreign companies can do, sometimes, I mean, just straight up the nationalization of natural resources in order to develop an industrial economy. Now, developmentalism, as are most sort of alliances against the landed elite, are politically messy. It draws on a range of ideologies from, you know, like pretty right-wing nationalists, some very, very, very scary people are technically developmentalists, to liberal and also centrist factions whose sort of productive and social base is in a specific kind of sort of domestic capitalist who's interested in sort of producing stuff locally. And also to people like Bolivia's Evo Morales, who is, you know, broadly considered a socialist, although I think his commitment to anything like socialist politics is tenuous at best. But all of these sort of political groups can and do and have at various times work together. This is actually one of the bases of Morales as well. I guess it's not really Morales's party anymore, but uh, Evo Morales's uh, MAS which was a very sort of explicit alliance between sort of left-wing social movements and then more sort of moderate centrist factions who were effectively developmentalist. This is a sort of a representation of a, a very common like kind of developmentalist politics, which is, again, the, this alliance between sort of left and capitalist factions who ally against la like large landowners on the basis that feudalism, which is, which is usually the way that like the sort of the power of large landowners is conceived, is an enemy to both of them. Now, this isn't how sort of like states that use developmentalist strategies have to work. Um, Germany, for example, uses a lot of developmentalist techniques to industrialize in the late 1800s. But, you know, the, the old landowning class, the old sort of like like German aristocracy is allied with the capitalists in Germany. And the two, you know, the, the two classes, the sort of German aristocracy, the capitalist class effectively merge. On the other hand, landowning classes are often implacably hostile to industrialization and countries that essentially annihilated their landowning classes by carrying out land reform tend to perform better economically than their counterparts who left their landowning class intact, which contributed to the enormous success of the economies of countries like China, Japan, Taiwan, and Vietnam, who, despite their enormous sort of ideological and political differences, all carried out land reform in the 20th century were rewarded with eventually by very, very powerful and large-scale industrial economies. But, you know, you might be saying, Mia, you, you've kind of put the cart in front of the horse here. You, you've talked about, 
you know, you, you, you've gone into some of the sort of political effects of rent first. But you haven't actually, you know, explained how rent actually works. And so that that is what I'm going to do next. And to explain how rent works, I'm going to turn to an unusual source. The work of the great Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Coronel. Coronel's a fascinating character. He he studied anthropology at my alma mater, the University of Chicago, under Terence Turner, a guy who I think 99% of people have never heard of before, but is probably most famous now for being also, you know, for also teaching David Graeber and being a sort of major influence on his work. Now, unlike David Graeber, while while Coronel was at the University of Chicago, he tried to get permission from the Cuban government to go do field work in Cuba. And, you know, so he gets to Cuba and he's like negotiating with the government and the government tells him to fuck off. So, OK, he tries to go back to the U.S., but Immigration and Nationalization Services, the INS, which is basically the predecessor of like Immigration Services, ICE and the Border Patrol. INS was sort of dissolved in, in 2003 when the sort of like I, 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 don't, I don't know exactly what the, the technical term for it is, but with the consolidation information of the Department of Homeland Security, which is really, truly uh, a, th- a thing that I think we tend to think it was only present, but is actually about 20 years old, and I, I, I am older than. There's also, you know, I, this sort, sort of outside the scope. This episode is like an enormously fascist institution that centralized an enormous amount of sort of political power in these like terrifying surveillance and police bureaucracies. But, you know, okay, so they're back, 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 back to the Fernando Cornell story. So he guys to go back to the U.S., but INS, which is the predecessor to all this stuff, like arrests him immediately and they deport him and ban him from the U.S. on the grounds that I uh, he he was the, the, they suspected him of being a, quote, subversive agent. Now, and, and again, I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. The sequence of events here is that. He tries to go to Cuba and the Cuban government tells him to fuck off. And so he goes back to the U.S. and the U.S. government is like, oh, yeah, no, this guy who the Cuban government just refused to let to do field work. This 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 guy is definitely a Cuban agent. So his his entire sort of like life gets derailed by this. Uh, he winds up, I think, back in Venezuela for a while. He I think he it takes like 20, almost like 20 years for him to be able to get back to the U.S. and finish his Ph.D., but, you know, when, when he does, and sort of in the process of this, he becomes a very, very famous and well-respected anthropologist. Now, when, when I was at UChicago, like, all of the people who sort of trained Corneal, that, that whole generation, and really, like, the, the whole sort of school of anthropology that he came from, which is a, a very, very interesting school that, you know, if, if, you, if you want to, like, read about this kind of stuff, I... I read David Graeber's uh, uh, Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value. I might do an episode on it at some point later. But all of that stuff is gone. But, but I ran into a professor who knew him back in the day, and he told us that Corneal was, you know, on the one hand, very respected academic, like very sort of like upstanding, like member of the academic community, also incredibly popular as like a partier who just get absolutely wasted and start dancing on tables. This guy absolutely rips. Um... <laughs> You know, and, and I think uh, very few people outside of anthropology have ever heard of him. But in anthropology, Corneal is important enough that, like, if you write about the state, you at least have to, like, mention him. And, you know, I, th- that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, most of the people who say the words the magical state, which is the name of his sort of famous book, uh, actually have read it. But I, I, I did read this book. I've read this book multiple times. Um, and 
it's really, really interesting. Now, the magical state, nature, money, and modernity in Venezuela is probably most famous as a history of the Venezuelan state, but that doesn't mean that it's sort of exclusively about that history. And in fact, you know, it, it, it really can't be. In, in, in order to think about the Venezuelan state, you have to think about oil. But you also can't think about oil in the way that most histories of oil think about it, which is a story about sort of like high geopolitics, right? If you, if you look at the histories of oil, right, it's about like high geopolitics and like prospecting and like tracking oil prices over time. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of most famous book of this genre is Daniel Jurgen's The Prize, which is, which is a fine book. But it it shares in this sort of tendency to you know, kind of, you know, unless they're writing about like a guy going prospecting, right? There's this tendency to sort of ignore the sort of material characteristics of oil and the sort of political effects of the extraction process and a lot of other aspects of oil that are very, very important. And what Coronel realizes is that oil is intricately tied to sort of the political conception of nature, to systems of land ownership, and also to Venezuelan statecraft. Now, this may seem a bit far afield, but in order to understand oil, you have to think about rent and rent extraction. And that's what Coronel does in ways that are both sort of profoundly interesting, and I, I think in a lot of ways profoundly ahead of his time. So Coronel, like us, asked the question, what actually is rent? Now, for, for you know, and, uh, Coronel goes through rent in a lot, you know, in it like goes goes through what you could, I guess, call the economic history of concessions of rent, right? Starting with the classical economists, uh, we're not that interested in the classical economists because, quite frankly, if you're if you, I don't know if if you're running into a neo-Ricardian analysis of what rent is, like I don't know, you're you're already a specialist. Like stuff is stuff stuff is happening for you that is uh, <laughs> quite interesting, quite odd. But we're we're mostly going to ignore them because the original classical economists' work has it's it's largely not the way people think about this now. And to the extent that people sort of claim to be derivatives of like these people, like people claim the lineage of Adam Smith, like eh, that's kind of sketchy. Instead, we're going to turn to Coronel's analysis of the way that neoclassical economics thinks about rent. Now. Corneal is someone who has spent a lot of time in the sort of literature of like oil pricing and sort of theories of sort of price formation and the state of the market, sort of the effect of political actors on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he argues that there, there's basically two ways of thinking about rent in terms of a commodity like oil. There's a macroeconomics view in which the rent someone who owns oil extracts when people have to buy it from them. You know, okay, so like like if 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 you're a landowner, right? You get rent because you own the thing and then people have to like take it like people need it. You have it. So you get to extract rent from it just by virtue of sort of having it um, in, 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 in the microeconomics view. When someone like pays the rent, right, what that is, is they're paying for what's called natural capital or capital that's, you know, provided by nature that someone now owns through like the miracle of private property. And so for these people, rent isn't something that's extracted at all, right? It's just someone getting paid for their capital because the way that they think about 
you know, about something like oil is that they think oil is just sort of natural capital. Now, okay, it's like this is this is in some sense, you know, it's like, okay, what what like who cares about this? This is a kind of like this this seems very obvious. But there's also a macroeconomics perspective, which is very different. And the macroeconomics perspective holds that, you know, rent isn't a payment for capital at all. It's something paid to landowners by capitalists. And the rent that these landowners get is basically the difference between, you know, what it costs you to get the oil out of the, you use sort of the landowner to get the oil out of the ground and what it costs the person who has the highest price of production to get the oil out of the ground. Now, okay, for, for, for reasons that are very complicated that I can't get into here, Basically, the, the the person who is like the worst at getting oil out of the ground is the person who sets what the price of oil is. So, you know, the, 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 the sort of like highest possible extraction price tends to be the price. And then, you know, the, 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 the micro, the, the, the sort of macroeconomic analysis of, of what rent is, right, is that it's a thing that capitalists pay to landowners who own natural resources. And the amount of money they get is based on how much cheaper it is for like that you know, that landlord to get their oil out of the ground than it is for like the landlord who's like the worst at this. And this is a real question, right? The question is, is someone who's getting rent paid to them, is is that rent payment for capital that they own? Or is it money from capitalists that capitalists have to pay to a non-capitalist class? And Corneal's answer is like, well, obviously rent is extracted from surplus value because because landowners don't produce value. But there's two different sort of places that they can get this value from. And this is where we have to get into something that's kind of weird. And that is the two different kinds of rents. But okay, before we get into the two kinds of different rents, do you know what else there's two different kinds of? Yeah, that's right. It is the products and services that support this show. And we're back. I hope you have enjoyed uh, both of the different kinds of products and services that support the show. And okay, I, I I promised you two kinds of rent, and I'm now going to give you two kinds of rent. So the two kinds of rent, there is something called differential rent, and differential rent is kind of close to the sort of macroeconomic perspective we talked about earlier. So differential rent is rent that's set by the price of production on the market. Right now, as as we sort of mentioned, prices tend towards the highest price of production. It's set by the people who are worst at producing it. And differential rent is the rent that the rest of the market gets by costing it by, you know, by it costing less for them to extract oil than it does, you know, for for someone who's like the worst at extracting oil. I. Cor- Corneal explains this in terms of uh, for a long time, the U.S. was sort of the price leader of oil and it was the price leader of oil because the American like property rights system is so absolutely bonkers that it makes it really really hard. You have to like ind- you have to like individually negotiate with like every person who owns a cow pasture in Nebraska in order to sort of like extract oil from them and this this makes the production process like very expensive. And so everyone else in the world is getting this differential rent because they have like a less completely like just wild system of uh <laughs> of property so the the product of this is that everyone else is getting differential rent because it's way cheaper for them to produce oil than it is for the u.s to produce oil so differential rent is a product of your efficiency right it, it's how it, it's an amount of money that's based on sort of the price of oil and it's based on how much better you know because you're still selling the oil at the, like the same price right but the amount that you get 
you know, the amount of rent that you get is is the difference between how much it costs you to get this oil out of the ground and how much it costs like some the some some sort of American dipshit who has to spend all this time negotiating with like thirty thousand individual landowners in the U.S. to do it. So that that's differential rent, but there's also something called absolute rent. Now, absolute rent is very, very, very different from from differential rent because absolute rent is not really determined by sort of production prices or like the market or supply and demand at all. Absolute rent is determined by the social power of the landowner. And this has really interesting effects, right? Because again, absolute rent isn't based on the production process and is instead based on, you know, the social it's 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 a social product of power land and this you know this this means that landlords and rent extractors can do something that capitalists aren't supposed to be able to do they can get profits that are larger than the general rate of profit and they can do it just by virtue of being powerful and owning land and this this has a bunch of very very weird knock on effects, right? If you've ever seen landlords talk about rent, right? You've seen the consequences of this. These people genuinely believe that they have a sort of moral right to returns with no risk all of the time, and that all of society should be structured in such a way as to guarantee that they have this free income that they do fucking nothing to do other than own buildings, and it should be guaranteed. You know, it should be structured to guarantee this by forcing tenants to pay rent, no literally no matter what is happening. You know, it, it, like, r- regardless of shit, like, I don't know, a pandemic. <laughs> now, the, the other sort of important difference is that a- is the absolute rent does not obey the laws of supply and demand. It is a product of social power. The, the, you know, it's the power of land ownership itself. And it's also sort of the power, you know, the, the social power is it's not it's not just purely the product of land ownership. It's also a product of the organization of the landowning class and the extent to which they're backed by the state and, you know, it's sort of militaries and it's polices. And this causes economists who are attempting to use supply and demand to explain rent to get very, very important events very wrong. One of the things that Corneo points out is that Morris Edelman, who was a very, very famous oil economist, um, predicts in 1972 that the price of oil is going to collapse based on oversupply and, co- and competition. Instead, uh, the price of oil between 1973 and 1974 increases by 400% because oil producers banded together to exercise their power, and this organization, known as OPEC, becomes a genuine world power. Uh, here's, here's how, here's how Corneal puts it. The sharp increase of 1973 and 1974 in oil prices did not result from a world shortage of oil. It was, rather, the outcome of a long historical process by which OPEC nations, acting as landowners, developed the means to extract a rent on the basis of their ownership of the oil fields, an an absolute rent, in addition to the differential rents they had collected in the past. In 1973, a set of converging political and economic conditions helped establish their collective ability to restrict the world's supply of oil. With this power, OPEC felt entitled to set market prices of oil, thus freeing the level of rent from the previous constraint of the market price. Now, rent itself, absolute and differential, would come to determine the market price of oil. Now, you may be asking yourself, Mia, th- this is all well and good for describing uh, the, the, the 
price of how for describing how the price of oil changes, but uh, what does this have to do with me? And the answer is that while Coronel is specifically focused on resource rents for, you know, obvious reasons, he is doing a study of the state of Venezuela, you can apply his analysis to the kind of rent that we all pay. If you follow Coronel's conclusions about absolute rent th- through to the American rental market, it produces startlingly different conclusions about the source and sort of nature of the so-called housing crisis that are traditionally presented. If rent levels are a product of the social power of the landlord class, then behavior that's otherwise inexplicable, like landlords sitting on empty properties instead of renting them out at lower rates, suddenly become clear. Armed with the backing of the state to secure its social power by carrying out evictions, and with the state's implicit backing to carry out technically illegal evictions, landlords can extract both differential and absolute rent, allowing them to tell the market to take a hike, and setting ever-increasing rents that renters have no choice but to pay or be swept aside in brutal anti-homeless raids. This has massive consequences on any potential strategy to reduce rent. OPEC, remember, was able to use its social power to increase the price of oil by 400% even in a period when the actual supply of oil was enormous, by pure virtue of organization and the power of their land ownership. While American landlords are certainly weaker and less organized than OPEC, The social power is still such that increasing supply is not guaranteed to drive down prices because in a situation governed by the extraction of absolute rent, rent is not determined by prices. Prices are determined by rent. On the other hand, this means that you can reduce rent by breaking the social power of the landlord. And indeed, even in very hot housing markets like Toronto and Los Angeles, this strategy can and has worked. Tenants unions which deploy the power of collective bargaining and the social solidarity of renters to combat the power of landlords, have succeeded in reducing rents, and can and will continue to do so. But these efforts are only the beginning of a process that finally answers the question, why are rents so high? If rents are high because of the social power of landlords, the way to bring rents down is to crush the bastards completely and expropriate them, to seize every last building and plot of land from every landlord in the country, and drive them as a class from the political mainstream into the pages of history. And then, and this is crucial, not to replace them with another landowning class, or, you know, as the Leninists proposed and actually did, replace them with the state. Only by destroying the category of landlord, not by regulating it or nationalizing it, can we finally escape the long nightmare of rent and enter a world where people's ability to live is determined not by the sort of capricious and arbitrary will of a small class of landowners, but on their human need for housing? This has been It Could Happen Here. You can find us in the usual places. And yes, go, go, go into the world and make the world without rent a reality. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's me, James, today, and I'm talking to Dermot Cosgrove about Wagner, Wagner, the, the Russian mercenary group and their actions in Africa. Uh, this is something that I've kind of tried to pitch for several years with, with not much success in the United States media. And I'm sure lots of other people have too. I'm by no means unique in that. And suddenly, obviously, everyone in the corporate media has become something of an expert in their actions uh, when things started happening in Ukraine. And so what we wanted to do here was kind of paint a picture of how they have a long record of human rights abuse. Um, Dermot's more expert in Africa, so that's what we're talking about, but also in Syria, of course. And I just wanted to give some more information. So we recorded this on uh, last Friday. Today is Tuesday, the 1st of August. And we talked a little bit about the coup in Niger, um, which has continued. And uh, since we recorded Evgeny Prigozhin, who, of course, is the like head of Wagner, the founder of Wagner, the oligarch who's in charge of that private military contracting group, um, made a statement sort of not exactly saying like, oh yeah, we did this coup, but more like saying, uh, oh cool, I see you've had a coup. Uh, what you could use is a group of mercenary Russians who are prepared to do incredible and horrific violence on your behalf. And let us know, we'll, we'll roll up. Um, also since then, ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States, it, it's a West African block there, has threatened intervention in Niger uh, if they don't sort of return to a democratic process. Uh, and then Mali and Burkina Faso, two other countries that are run by military governments, military more or less hunters, uh, have threat have said they'll like stand with Niger, stand with the Niger coup. So it threatens to destabilize again the whole region, right? You'll see lots of misinformation about this on Twitter. I've seen a ton of stuff from like oh, just tanky accounts who don't fully have a grasp on what's happening in this part of the world and and i think it's quite 
dismissive to, to just use Africa to further your whatever your political agenda is rather than treating this as a, a tragedy that will impact people living in these countries, right? Especially Niger, um, where people are already often struggling to get by, really struggling to make ends meet. Like sanctions on this country will hurt them. Sanctions on this country will hurt the poorest people in this country. A military dictatorship rarely delivers a better quality of life for people. And like I would like to see people focusing on that and not on some stupid argument about decolonization. Like it's uh, it, that's not what's happening here. What's happening is that the one powerful people have wanted more power and they've taken that at the expense of the quality of life and often the lives of other people. Obviously, with with Mali and Burkina Faso saying that they would like support Niger, those are both governments that struggle to support themselves and defend their own people and capitals from Islamist insurgencies and and other like armed movements. So, it, you know, not 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 a hugely, I guess serious threat but still very destabilizing and again like this will have negative impacts for everyone living there which is the thing i'd like to focus on so we're going to start here with dermot introducing himself and then we'll go from there my name is dermot cosgrove i'm a french foreign legion uh, veteran i was six years french foreign legion and since 1996 i've worked across africa uh, and the Middle East and a little bit of South Asia um, as a security consultant and field security advisor, mainly with um, with oil and gas companies, infrastructure companies, but also some work with the with the media. Nice, yeah. So I've been a journalist, been covering that field for not quite as long, but one of the things that I remember seeing, you know, pre-pandemic, is this rise of this this russian mercenary group wagner group in africa it was just not an area of interest to any u.s publication generally stories in africa are very hard to sell but i know that you were obviously on the ground looking at this so can you maybe just start with when you sort of first became aware of them and what you were seeing well, I first became aware of them with their activities in the central african republic yeah. when the um when the, the mayhem broke up there a few years ago and the EU um, started sending in troops, there was quite a lot of heavy fighting. Then it, st- it, it stabilized a little bit, but there was still quite a lot of fighting going on. And next thing, these Russians showed up. And it was just a little bit kind of, yeah, I'd heard about them in operating in Syria, but you know, next thing they were in, of all places, the Central African Republic. Which you know is a is kind is you know a little bit of a backwater in the middle of Africa. It's it's squashed in between Chad, Rwanda, Burundi, the Congo, places like that. And it's um, historically it's it's been uh, there's always been a French uh, French uh, presence there, but it's always been a place where there's been quite a bit of conflict around it. Yeah, yeah, not like a consolidated. Uh, like nation state, really. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of lot of different people. Um, it's not an identity that like fits with with identities on the ground and necessarily. So, yeah, what was their role there? What were they they doing as like a sort of mercenary or private military contracting group? Well, they 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 were really operating a bit in the shadows. They were they had come in. Apparently, they were supposedly there to train the the governments, the the Republican Guard of the of the Presidential Guard, 
Um, but they were also, there was also word was starting to leak out where they were involved in the diamond mines and they, you know, they were, they were moving all over the country. They were heavily involved in militias. Then words started coming out about, you know, there was murders on checkpoints that were joint checkpoints between uh, government militias and Wagner group um, operatives. And next thing, this story broke where three journalists, three Russian journalists disappeared. They'd been following the activities of Wagner in Central Africa. And I think the last thing that was seen of them was that they were stopped at a checkpoint and then gone. There was yeah. just, they disappeared in the bush. Um, and that was, I, I suppose that was kind of the first peak that these are a nasty bunch of operators. And there had been a company in Russia years ago who were the Alpha Group. And they had basically, they were basically uh, Afghan veterans. But they operated kind of in the shady oligarch section of security in Russia itself. But Wagner Group were a completely different animal. You could tell from the, right from the start, these were, they had a different model. Yeah, very much so. And like a different model to even like, like there are various, like, I guess, like national perspectives to private military contracting. Like there was a, a time when you like, you could sit down in a hotel bar in lots of places in Africa and be assured that someone with a South African accent or someone who would claim to be from Rhodesia would like come and talk to you. And that was their industry. And they would say some racist <laughs> shit. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. it's, it's hard for me to not like hear a South African accent and be like, oh, fucking, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But obviously that doesn't define everyone from South Africa by any means. But yeah, like there was that. There was there were a lot of Colombian people in that industry of, as sort of the yeah. civil war in Colombia yeah. became. But these guys are kind of different, right? Like, like they seem to be operating more like on behalf of governments or, or people who would be in government who would like to be in government yeah and mm -hmm. yeah explain how they do shit just differently well they they seem to have taken the uh a, a, well you'll be familiar with executive outcomes the yes. south yeah. african um, mercenary organization mm -hmm. and executive outcomes business model was when they operated they went to the client and said right okay We'll sort out your problem, but we want a percentage. It wasn't a paycheck or a contract, kind of a, a great dollar sum for uh, for a contract. It was they wanted a percentage. So they would clear, like ex Executive Outcomes cleared out some of the diamond fields in Angola. And I think their going rate was something like 15%. Wagner Group seemed to have done that, taken that model. But at the same time, they've rolled in a little bit of the the Blackwater type idea in in Iraq, where they were operating as an arm of, of you know, Blackwater were operating as an arm of the US government. Yeah. Um, they were, you know, Paul Bremner's uh, personal guard. And EOR Wagner seemed to have combined the two, along with making Hollywood movies, because they've made, um, they've made a couple of movies. Um, yeah. One about Central Africa and their, you know, these Rambo-esque kind of um, movies. And it's, it's just, it's like, what the hell is going on here? It's very strange. It's like, I think we maybe can't divorce it from that kind of uh, like global war on terror, for want of a better phrase, like era yeah. kind of cult yeah. 
that developed around the US special forces and, and their like it's why you yeah. can buy Navy SEAL soap, right? And yeah. like they've they tried to do a similar thing, but with a private military contractor. Do you know like the what's the composition of these? Like most like PMCs from I guess Western nations will be ex military people. Is that the case with Wagner or where are they getting people from? Yeah, it's it's um from what I've seen of there, the people they brought in is that you've got a core group of Russians who come from the more elite units. Um, no, they've been they've been really assigned to the the money making contracts in in Africa. So you know they they've operated alongside Malian truce, um, and the whole idea there is that if they do take control of zones, then the Malian government is actually giving them a percentage of mineral uh you know mineral extraction and whatever in the in the region they've there's also been talk of their blatant intimidation and protection rackets um of other western you know of western companies working in the sahel so they'll rock up and kind of go we'll look after you um isis or al-qaeda won't get you um if you pay as a fee and then if the company go well you know that's crazy then you know suddenly attacks start happening but they seem to be a core in in Africa at least, and in Libya, uh, where they were heavily involved. There was a core group of of Russians who were there, and then surrounding them, there was kind of lesser specialized um, lesser specialized troops, lesser elite troops, and then in Libya, especially during the during the fighting there, when they fought for Haftar, Khalifa Haftar. You had, you know, they brought in Syrians. They were known to have brought in um, a few other different nationalities of basically guys they'd gathered in other countries and offered jobs. Yeah. So you had, I, I think there was about 15, 1,500, 2,000 um, Syrians at one point because you, there's these huge numbers of Wagner kind of being bandied about on maps and stuff like that on the internet. And it, it's... It's smoke and mirrors. Actual proper Wagner personnel are wouldn't be massive numbers, but they've got you know they bring in these almost auxiliaries from yeah. the likes of Syria or other places that they've been in. Right. Yeah. And they another thing I guess that was unique about them was like with that they were obsessed with posting on Telegram. Like I've never seen uh, yeah. just incredibly online. Uh, in to include like evidence of their war crimes, right? Which, which or, or I guess sometimes not at war at all, human rights abuses would probably be more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But we should probably talk yeah. about some of those just so people can get a sense of, I think what I'd like people to take from this just to like, uh, be explicit about it, I suppose, is that like all this stuff was happening in Africa. There w was no lack of evidence or people trying to say it. And it was not paid attention to by the government or media really, especially in the US, but also elsewhere. Yeah. And then everybody yeah. suddenly got sad when it happened in Ukraine because it was happening to people who were more valued. And I think we can, we'll keep fucking up like that if we keep ignoring, um, especially Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm shocked in a way that there hasn't been heavier sanctions put on because there's been, there's been two UN investigations into their activities. There was the... They, they murdered, they were complicit in the murder or actively uh, participated in the murder of over 300 Malians in, in a village uh, only a few months ago. There's been a UN investigation. They've been found to have been there, been uh, participants in it. 
and there's nothing. And I'm, you know, you're not seeing any UN sanctions. You're not, you know, you're not seeing anything uh, going on. The world seems to be turning a blind eye to it. In Libya, I mean, the BBC had a had a report, um, a special report where they'd actually found the iPad of one of the Wagner operators with tons and tons and tons of evidence as to what they were doing, numerous human rights abuses. And again, it's just like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, we won't really worry about it. Oops, Ukraine. Yeah, and it's... It, it seems shocking to people, I think, if you're just a consumer of, you know, the, the New York Times or something. Wow, where did these guys come yeah. from? They're terrible. But they've been there for years, decade maybe. And uh, and because our news is very focused on certain countries and certain things, it, it came mm. as a shock to people. Um, maybe yeah. we could just explain, like, obviously, the human rights abuses be- began in Syria. Um, I don't think I need to detail... There are, there are videos that people can find on their own time if they want to. Yeah. Some brutal executions and such. But yeah, could you like at least sort of enumerate some instances where they've where they've done that in Africa? I can think of three or four countries off the top of my head. Well, there's there's Valley is the instant one. There's the 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 big one, which I think was three hundred civilians were murdered. They basically locked up in a village. Uh, I think it was it's Muna or Muni. Munia is the name of the village in Mali. Yeah, they rocked up with the with Malian troops and proceeded to hunt for terrorists and uh, murdered three hundred people, um, including beheadings and and whatnot. And, and that was there was absolutely one hundred percent guaranteed. There was uh, Wagner operators did murder and behead uh, local villagers. Six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, there was. Um, there was an attack against um, a convoy which included Wagner uh, personnel and their response was to rock into a village and execute 10 people. So, you know, that's two cases that, again, unless you're looking, unless you're kind of aware of the certain sources that are available and looking at local journalists um, who are in these, in these countries, it, it's not popping up anywhere. Um, it's just not coming to light. You know, there's uh, Central Africa, there, there's been rapes, murders, there's been mass rapes, there's, you know, there's been executions, torture, you know, it, it's just off the charts. In Mali, there is actually a known, and it's becoming famous in Mali, there is the torture house in, in inside one of their bases in Mali. And it's becoming, it's widely known, it's there. You know, it's mul- the multinational organizations, the UN, the EU all know about its presence. They all have the evidence, and yet there's nothing. There's still nothing being done. Yeah, and I think it's easy. Like a thing that happened, if you remember, when there were riots in France, uh, was that people would be like, "Oh, well, like you know, France is in all these countries in Africa, which obviously comes from a legacy of colonialism, which was violent and terrible." Mm. But uh, yeah. th- there are other forces. Like I remember someone positing that like Mali had been liberated from French control. Uh, France left, but like that, the, these guys came. Like it, it wasn't as if yeah. uh, you know there yeah. was a you know yeah. a democratic transition of power or you know like a yeah. desirable yeah. outcome. And I think yeah, for- well, I mean, I mean, I mean, even this morning, the with the with the coup in mm-hmm. Niger, you know, there was a tweet uh, put out by one of the Russian uh, Twitter accounts claiming that the 
coup had been orchestrated and managed by by Wagner, uh, who were liberating Niger from the from the colonialists. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, they actually believe their own. You, you just do they actually believe their own stuff? Uh, it's just amazing. Well, it's very well. It, I don't know if they believe it, but it seems to be very well targeted to get people to believe it online, right? Like, there's this whole yeah, yeah, sort of hammer and sickle in bio community that thinks that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is denazifying. And when you couple with a lack of media coverage of Africa and a lack of knowledge of, of what's happened there, it, it's very understandable that people sort of don't quite grasp it. I mean, I think that's 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 an education thing and a, and a media thing yeah but it's i think a thing people may not be aware of is the one thing that has been reported a lot is the heavy heavy losses have taken in ukraine right often in like the, the, they call the almost penal yeah. battalions that they have like um that they'll, they'll have convicts and yeah. things like that yeah. right can you explain like i think this might lead people to believe that they're not capable of doing what they've done in Africa for a long time, but that's that's not correct, right? They're still sending, I guess, operators to Africa. They're still doing their terrible shit in Africa. Yeah, there's been uh, e even recently there was a lot of flights being being picked up, moving in and out of Africa, which were Wagner Wagner associated aircraft. And at first it was, you know, this happened around the time that they made the move towards um, back into Russia towards to, towards Putin. And there was a lot of questions as to, is this a pullout of personnel to support their, what's going on in, in Russia? And then it stopped and the flights started coming back in. But it looks like there's been a ramp up again in a lot of African countries. So they, it looks like they're upping the personnel. Now, whether it's they've they've cut some kind of deal where they're now just going to be a money maker, um, I'm not quite sure. But you know that will remain to be seen. If they have orchestrated Niger, um, which is possible, then it's clearly kind of a ramp up of of operations. They're very very skilled in whipping up local populations because they whipped up anti French sentiment in both Mali and in uh, Burkina Faso. And even though, and you know, the the French did the the French did bomb, uh, carry drone strikes, which you know did kill civilians and stuff. But the 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 massive reaction to uh, to these incidents uh, was definitely by Wagner at the time. It is a very lucrative, almost informal empire for Russia, right? Like it's a very lucrative way for them to continue this process of extractive colonialism and, and violent subjugation of African people, um, often in ways that are not that distinct from the colonialism that we saw, uh, you know, 150, 200 years ago. And um, the you know, real, like you've detailed, brutal uh, human rights abuses and all extent, all to just extract wealth and resources from Africa in, in a very similar way to what we've seen before, but in a less formal way, I guess, than, you know, with French and British colonialism. Yeah, it is. It's it's um, it's very much a, a corporate imperialism as opposed to a nationalistic imperialism in a way. And it's you know the money is flowing into the pockets of the you know the oligarchs and stuff in in Russia. Uh, I mean the there was a I was in a bit of a discussion this morning um, about 
about Niger and someone made a comment about there being, oh, well, there's not the, if you look at them, the Sahel map and the mineral wealth that, oh, there's, there's more attractive kind of mineral kind of extraction further south into the Congo. But the thing is in, and I've worked in Mauritania, uh, you know, you had Mauritania, which is three times the size of, of France with a population of 4 million. And yet only 1% of the country has actually been surveyed for its mineral wealth. And it already has massive gold, iron, and iron ore deposits and copper deposits. If you take that, if you go over into uh, Burkina Faso, it has huge gold, gold deposits, uh, which are underexplored. It's relatively, the vast majority would be artisanal mining, the same with Mali. Um, and if you go across into Niger, You've got the huge uranium mine, which is a keystone of the of the French nuclear industry at Arlet, which would be worth a fortune to whoever would control the territory. So it's um, it's a very colonialist, I suppose, manual to what the uh, what Wagner are doing, but it's a very it's it's very much a, a corporate uh, model as opposed to coming in. And establishing governance, they're they're quite happy to to leave kind of administration and governments and stuff like that to local government, but they want the mineral wealth, and they'll you know they will manipulate and in, and embed themselves with the local military, um, who you know if you you know you've got Mali, it's it's governed now by a military a military junta, Niger is likely to be the same, and you have you know, Burkina Faso. It's not quite far off that either, and you know, So there, if you don't in these countries, if you don't have the backing of the military, you've got nothing. You're not going to be in power. So, yeah, and then if they control the military, and then they control yeah. those in power, right? And as long as that's amenable, like you say, to their yeah. desire to extract wealth, then they don't care. And yeah, and it's and you know the the other part of it is they're they're bringing in all the toys for the for these go for these governments as well. They're importing drones, they're importing weaponry, helicopters, you know. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because that is something they seem to have. Like Eric Prince tried to get himself a plane, right? And he didn't really do very well. Um, but like their access to yeah. military hardware is it's unprecedented. So like where are they able to obtain all that? Oh, well, they're, they're definitely um, they're definitely in collusion with I mean, whatever tensions there are in Ukraine between the Russian military and, and Wagner, there's definitely not any tensions between Wagner and the Russian military when it comes to securing hardware yeah. uh, for Africa. Yeah. I mean, they, there was brand new MI-24s unloaded in, in Mali um, only last year. And they made a very, very big show of the French leaving and these, and, and these helicopters arriving. So, you know, there's, uh, there's been Turkish built drones are starting to, uh, are coming in left, right and center across all with the aid and, and shipment by, um, by Wagner. So they're, they have incredible, uh, with Russian produced equipment, they have incredible access, access to it. And it can only come from one place. It only, it can only come from the military. And, you know, undoubtedly, you know, we've, we've seen Russian troops arrive in Ukraine with weapons that are 50 years old because there's nothing on their bases. Um, well, kind of, it's very clear that there's nothing on their bases because 
these weapons are showing are, are being transported to, for use in Africa. Yeah, they've done the same in Myanmar, right? They're still selling planes. They're still selling yeah. munitions there. It, and it's yeah, yeah. Like it's it's almost like a uh, I don't know. There's like a corporate and a state structure, and sometimes it seems like, especially well, we see that in the US too, I guess. But they're competing. They're competing desires. They're parallel. One doesn't one doesn't have sort of oversight yeah. over the other. One thing I do want to get into is this culture that exists within Wagner that is it, it's an extreme glorification of violence, right? And, and a glorification of sometimes of Nazism, yeah. of other sort of related kind of things that I guess they see as like warrior societies. And you can mm -hmm. see a lot in the telegram. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, it's been, um, there's definitely been an element of these guys have been recruited from right wing in the in the Russian military. And we already know there was some of these units were heavily involved with the with the Russian football hooligans who had a very hard right leaning anyway. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen across like it, it's been hugely in evidence across um, some of the some of the towns where there's been fighting in Libya, where Wagner have left graffiti of, you know, the, the Sonnenrand and a lot of these other you know, Nazi um, symbols. And there is this whole mass glorification of, of violence from the top down. I mean, the executions, beatings, you know, the, the torture of local non-white people in there, you know, that they've come in, you know, come in contact with. We've seen it in Syria, um, brutal executions. It's a very much a white supremacist, far right. It's not even undertones because it's so, it's so blatant. It's right in your face. I mean, they, they just don't hide it on their telegram channels. They don't hide it where they go. You know, we've seen military patches that they're wearing, which are, you know, extreme right. Uh, graffiti they leave behind, which is extreme right. You know, even I haven't seen the, the movies they've made, but I believe they're, they're actually, there's, there's a lot of imagery there as well, which would be, you know, right up the street of kind of neo-fascist organizations as well. Yeah, it certainly seems that they're pretty explicit about it and no one's, they don't care. They, I mean, yeah. Prigozhin no. supposedly called no. it Wagner because it was Hitler's favorite composer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, they've, um, so, like some of the, there's, there's crossover between some of the other um, Russian far-right organizations uh, and some of the, you know, some of these units, these far-right units who've been, who are in, in Ukraine and Wagner, there is a, a kind of cross-pollination of personnel as well. Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems like they, they sort of go back and forth with the military. It's not like, a, I think people yeah. would see it as more of a distinct entity than it perhaps is. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're, they're not a, there's guys from Wagner will show up with, with other organizations from time to time, but then they seem to kind of drift back to Wagner. Um, and you're seeing that, especially in Ukraine. In we saw it as well in Libya. There was there was guys that were identified who were operating in you know with Wagner in Libya, who definitely had you know had operated with other organisations as well. Um, you know they'd been. I think there was a number of them were had been photographed that had actually been ID'd during some of the um, the football violence in Marseille um, during the European Cup a yeah. few years ago. So you know they're they're in this in 
this circle and they're they are moving over and back between different organizations but again it's it's a massive far-right entity like yeah. yeah it's yeah it's part of this giant cluster of the sort of armed extreme right yeah has been yeah sort of festering in uh, for a long time unnoticed by a lot of people i wonder like yeah 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 You've mentioned like if people aren't paying attention, they won't see things, which I think is right because it's not you know it's not on primetime TV mm-hmm. or TV at all. Where would you like? Where yeah. would you go for coverage, especially of let's say you know parts of Africa where you're working? I use I would use Twitter quite a lot to to look at what what local journalists are doing in you know in places like Mali and, and Niger. Um, I think I started off. I started off using Twitter in Yemen when I was working there um, because the you know, I was fifty kilometers from a town that was entirely controlled by Al Qaeda, uh, and every one of them was on Twitter. Uh, they were all posting on Twitter, and you know there, there was some fantastic local journalists who were posting on Twitter as well. Uh, so you got to see in almost real time what was happening in these places. You know, and when there was no other media, really. Uh, and I carried on using Twitter. And then because I do write a security report, you know, digging around and you had, there's a couple of, uh, of online analysts and OSINT people who are on, who cover kind of global conflict, but they do cover quite a lot in the Sahel. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you would have, like the likes of War Noir and people like that were very good on the arm side of things. Yeah, he's very good at uh he keeps an eye on Myanmar as well. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah, there's a few useful accounts. I think you do share them on your own account sometimes as well, I've seen. Um, I do, yeah. From time to time I'll share yeah. them on my own. Yeah. Um what is yours if people want to follow along, see pictures of your feet? It's it's uh Dermot N. Cosgrove on there. All right. So D E R M O T N and then Cosgrove, C-O-S-G-R-O-B. Yeah, wonderful. It is one of those things that, like, we talk about, you know, like, in many ways, you know, people spend too much time on Twitter and, that you know, when it dies, it'll be nice. But, like, it is something... I was talking to colleagues in Rwanda, uh, you know, a while ago, but mm. like, I remember when going to Rwanda, one of the things that they'll ask you is, are you verified on Twitter? This was before you could buy a verification for $7 or whatever. It, it, it actually allows yeah. a lot of people to work, especially in parts of Africa. It gives them sort of, like, especially in places where the government is hostile to journalism, it gives them an outside audience that will, one hopes, you know, make them a little bit safer and also to be able to share these things. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. And losing that, like, there's no other platform that does that. No, there isn't. And it's a pity that it's, that it's actually gone down the road. It's gone down. I mean, I would be, I work a month on, month off, so I would be a big Twitter user when, um, when I'm at work um, because, you know, gathering information for my reports and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then um, and at home, I'm not on it so much. But, you know, for local journalists and, and activists, it, you know, it's a fantastic, it's, it, the whole idea is fantastic because they are able to get that message out. They are more visible um, in countries where they've got repressive regimes, and it keeps an eye on them. And you know, the more visibility they have, they wouldn't be a hundred percent safe, but they are a little bit safer. Yeah, 
like I've seen it with colleagues in Myanmar as well. Just sort of, it, it's yeah. only out out yeah. uh, to the world. You know, the Irrawaddy and all these other publications, which in, are um, yeah like, able to get things out. That and lots of those people are in hiding. You know, like they can't operate in cities, mm -hmm. and they're able to get things out to the world. Yeah. So, like for that alone, it's valuable. And and yeah, it's a shame that it seems to be going the way it's going. Yeah, I think I think there was even the, you know during the well even currently there's still some um, still some people in Afghanistan who are it's their only outlet to get information out about what's happening under the Taliban regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've uh, in touch with a few people in Afghanistan. Yeah, that it's you know it, that would all be lost. I wouldn't have ever found them otherwise. Um, or some of them know through friends. Yeah. But, um, I want to finish up by asking like. The, the stuff that Wagner has done in Africa is repulsive. The stuff that he's done in Syria is disgusting. Like, what, mm -hmm. if, if you had your, your, like, if you had your way, like, how can people or how can governments or, or like, what can we do to, to stop this kind of, you know, human rights abuse? Um, I think there's as much pressure can, that can be put on um, in the States, obviously, with congressmen and, and senators, that if people go to them there, in the UK, love government, you know, I'm Irish, you know, we have a long history of, of peacekeeping and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, investigations of human rights abuses. So, you know, it's putting pressure on your politicians that action needs to be taken, you know, and the UN, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of the UN because they have been so ineffectual in places. I mean, my, my brother was in, was in Lebanon, uh, on three separate occasions with the with the uniform force and came home and described it as, you know, one hand clapping because they they even hamstrung their, their own people. But you know, there there isn't outside of the EU which can enforce sanctions on them, you know, there there needs to be massive sanctions on anyone associated with Wagner. Yeah. And there needs to be more I mean, you know, the the EU has pretty much been kicked out of the Sahel there needs to be more uh, a better relationship built up with these with these these governments as repulsive as some of these governments are there is no real other choice but there has to be a way where Wagner has to be highlighted if you know journalists get to journalists ask them why isn't the why aren't these questions being asked is it you know why is it only being the focus and I'm, I'm a big supporter of, the, of Ukraine but why is it only since Ukraine, that we're seeing Wagner televisions, yeah, you know they've been they've been murdering people. They were putting you know they were booby trapping kids' toys in Libya as they retreated out of uh, out of uh, Western Libya. Yet none of that appeared. You know the the one BBC report kind of came out and it died afterwards, which you know is you know horrendous. You know this needs to be they need to be hammered left, right, and centre. Yeah, and I think a lot. You're right. A lot of that comes from if you find editors, you can ask them why they haven't covered this when it was happening in Africa. Like they were putting human beings yeah. in holes in the ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're on Twitter, jump on Twitter, follow the follow editors, news organizations, and you know, tweet at them and just yeah. oh, why aren't you covering this? Yeah, make them say or make people explain why this doesn't matter as much. And the same with your politicians. Like I know sometimes. Writing to politicians can seem ineffectual, but like I can't put sanctions on them, you know, and I can't, no. I don't have the no. ability to project force. Yeah. 
Uh, and I don't think there's nothing that Wagner produced that you can kind of go, well, I'm not going to buy, you know, I'm not going to buy this product because it impacts uh, Wagner. They don't care. They're, they're not selling to the consumer. They're, yeah. you know, they're stealing um, to put in their own pockets. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that was wonderful, David. That's, is there anything you want to, else you want to plug or uh, anywhere else people can find you, learn out more, learn more about the stuff? Um, well, well, I'm on um, Twitter is probably the best place. I have kind of promised myself to do a little bit more kind of on the uh, highlighting the conflict in because because I work in North Africa, um, the Sahel, and even though I'm not in the Sahel itself, the Sahel has been it's always been a massive area of interest for me. So I've kind of I, I probably will kind of. Uh, flip my um, my Twitter around a bit more to reflect what's going on in across the Sahel. Yeah, yeah. So I'm on there. Um, I've got a I've got an Instagram account, but uh, that's only really if you like pictures of dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's what it's good for. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, David. We appreciate it, and uh, yeah, hopefully no people learn a bit more about this. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, welcome to It Could Happen Here. Yes, this is what I sound like today. This is Shireen. Just go with it. If you listen to the sheep episode, I sounded much worse. So this is, I sound great today, IMO. But um, yeah, thank you for listening today. I'm excited to talk about what I want to talk about for the next two days because it's something that I've always wanted to kind of just like open up as more of a conversation. And I'm so grateful to have uh, author and amazing person. They've just written a book called To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living, and it's out now. You can go get it. Uh, Ami Weintraub, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, too. There's a particular reason why I asked you to come on the show. I specifically wanted to talk to a Jewish anti-Zionist. So I want to approach the conversation as if people are really unfamiliar with Zionism, because I think most people are. Can you maybe just start by telling me, like, what is Zionism? Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, and I said to Shireen before as well, like, I... I'm not particularly like an expert on Zionism or Israel-Palestine. So also just want to recommend that listeners also go out and find the experts, find the materials that you're interested in if this conversation sparks your interest. um, And take my my thoughts as just one thought in the mix of all the thoughts. Um, So yeah, when I was thinking about like defining Zionism, I was thinking about sort of like the origins of Zionism and like how did we even get to that place yeah um and Zionism for me reflects um and I think is like this political desire to have a Jewish state and to have that Jewish state like on the land of Israel is how um is how Zionism has materialized in its formation and prior to like the actual political movement of Zionism, there has been like a connection of the Jewish people to that specific land. Um, it just hadn't materialized into like an actual movement to establish a state on that land. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like there's been like a yearning and like a memory and like a collective sense of um connection to like jerusalem to that piece of land um but it was only in like the 1800s when there was nation state building occurring in general in um europe specifically in eastern europe that the movement for zionism started to develop in the form that we have today um and a lot of that was because one reason like Jews were seeing, oh, wow, like German people are creating a state or French people are creating a state. Like we are a people, we should have a state. Um, And at the same time, Jews were also being excluded from citizenship in a lot of the actual like newly formed countries that they were living in. Um, So there was like this dispossession also from place where they were and matched with a general like rise in anti-Semitism as well. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those things kind of crystallized into creating a p- actual political movement around that kind of nascent, like more like religious, spiritual yearning. Yeah. Um, and then that formed into like many different types of Zionism, like more militaristic Zionism, more socialist Zionism, 
religious Zionism, et cetera. Um, and that's all kind of, yeah, made its way to become Israel. Yeah. Palestine. Yeah. How, how would you differentiate all of those, like the cultural versus religious versus political? Like, how would you personally differentiate them? I know you're not an expert, but just like speaking yeah. from experience. Yeah, I have to think on that. It's, like, it's complicated, <laughs> I would say. Because it feels like to me, from just reading about the history of Zionism, mm -hmm. it, it did kind of start in a religious like origin, but it became more political. Is, am I reading that right? Or mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think like, yeah, that's what can be pretty confusing. I think about understanding like Zionism in general is just like, where did this even come from? Like how did yeah. these like, especially Zionism, like originating more from like Ashkenazi, like European Jews. Yeah. How did this even come to be and seen as something that like the longing and the connection to the land being part of Jewish culture and religion, but that only turning into a desire for a nation state, like at that certain moment. Yeah. Um, so the like different categories of like religious Zionism versus political versus militaristic versus socialist were kind of like the ways that Zionism was there was like different movements of Zionism in in Europe and Eastern Europe at the time of its origins. So it's kind of like referring to more of its historical relationship. And then that still influences the politics today in contemporary, um, like I'll just say state of Israel and also many like Israel-Palestine, but speaking about Zionism, that feels more relevant. Um, so you still have like socialist Zionists who are more on the left than you have like more like right-wing religious Zionists who have probably have more historical origins in like more militaristic Zionism um, and religious Zionists who maybe are like, we are here for the religious reasons of being Jews on this land versus like a socialist Zionist. Like their framework was more like, we want to create this more socialist utopia sort of vision um, versus a more political militaristic Zionist, their original vision was like, we want to dominate this land right. and have right, yeah. political power. Yeah, um, it feels like in recent times, it's kind of leaned more in that direction only because of, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, the state of the world. But when, yeah. you look up, <laughs> when you look up Zionism, it's defined, I'm just going to read what I found and please interrupt me if you're like, actually, no. Um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> when you look up Zionism, it's defined as an organized nationalist movement generally considered to have been founded by Theodore Herzl in 1897. However, the history of Zionism began earlier and is intertwined with the Jewish history and Judaism as a whole. The organizations of, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, but Hovave Zion, the lovers of Zion. How would you say? Oh, I don't know how you. Hovave Zion? Yeah. Is like, yeah. yeah. The, this organization was held as like the forerunner of the modern Zionist ideals. And they were responsible for 20 Jewish towns in Palestine between 1870 and 1897. This is from just 
online history. Um, <laughs> and at the core of the Zionist ideology was this traditional aspiration for a Jewish national home through the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty in Palestine. And this was to be facilitated by the Jewish uh, diaspora. Uh, Herzl apparently sought an independent Jewish state, usually defined as a secular state with a Jewish majority population. And he wrote a 1896 pamphlet to describe exactly what he wanted. Uh, and though he did not live to witness it, Israel was established. Uh, and so what he wanted did come to fruition, even though, in my opinion, it was not done in a just way. Uh, but um, that's history for you. But yeah, I think the actual core of it is really understandable and, and true. You know, like, of course, every marginalized community wants a safe haven and a place where they can all go to. I think my biggest, what, what I, what I really dislike about the, what, where it is now, where Zionism is now is just how, much it erases everyone else that's already there. It's it's almost as if Palestine was like an empty field, totally. you know. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of Zionists today kind of erase that history and erase that like they massacred hundreds of people and they uh, displaced over seven hundred and fifty thousand people. It's called the Nakba. It's called a catastrophe. That's what Palestinians refer to it as. And I feel like Zionists tend to not. I mean. It, from what I understand, it's as if that isn't like real history. And mm -hmm. from what I've read or like from what I've heard from people that have grown up in Israel, the history that they learn is also a little bit selective in mm -hmm. what they learn. But, um, but yeah, that's, I've just been, I've been reading a lot about Zionism for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice to have someone actually like, with experience in it, because I can only learn so much from the internet and from like secondhand stuff. Totally. I feel like that, like, like when we look at like the early Zionists and it's like, oh yeah, like these desires to like have sovereignty and have yeah. autonomy and agency for your people who are being marginalized in your country, like, or in these lands that they live reasonable, like that totally makes yeah. sense. And that, and that it has to, like you said, be also seen through the lens of like the actual history that occurred, which is materially trying to like build a nation state as like part of your people's liberation is going to <laughs> involve lots of oppression and violence. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up like, um, yeah, like understanding the history of Zionism, like being able to have empathy for that original um, message, and then just really being like, that's what led me into like anarchism ultimately was saying that this desire for a nation state to be like a liberatory project um, is kind of always going to be flawed in a way. So actually like, I don't know, kind of said like, you know, Jewish like agency, sovereignty and like liberation, like we actually deserve better than that. You know, we deserve to not actually be like um, held within the confines of like what is possible in a nation state mm -hmm. um, as I think like all people deserve. Yeah, totally. Um, 
So that's kind of how I've come to this point now. No, I, and I really want to talk to you more about how you've landed where you are with your beliefs. But yeah, I think what also gets forgotten is that pre-1948, there were Jewish people in Palestine, you know, and, and Christian people. Everyone got yeah, along. Uh, totally. I'm from Syria, but even in Syria, everyone, like in all, in most Middle Eastern countries, there was a mix of all these religions and they all yeah. got along. And I think that's what really angers me when it comes to like, basically like the news saying it's like this ancient religious conflict, because that's mm-hmm. just simply not true. And I think that's a huge defense that a lot of like militant Zionists have, where it's like this eternal cultural religious war and it's simply just false. I think mm-hmm. that's something that always bothers me. Um, I just want to give a little bit more history just to bring us to like current day. Just I think it's, this stuff is a little bit interesting. So in 1975, the UN General Assembly, they passed Resolution 3379, which designated Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination. However, this resolution was repealed in 1991 by replacing Resolution 3379 with Resolution 46-86. And this new resolution... It was adopted on December 16th of 1991. It revoked the determination in the previous resolution 3379 determining Zionism as racist. And Israel had made this revocation of this resolution a condition of its participation in the Madrid Peace Conference, um, which was a conference that was held at the end of 1991. And uh, it was also raised under pressure of the administration of uh, President Bush uh Papa. <laughs> I just find that funny. No, H.W. Bush. I'm sorry. This is not funny stuff. I just, this is how <laughs> I cope. Um, but basically the revocation was simply this one sentence. The General Assembly decides to revoke the determination contained in its resolution 3379 of 10th of December 1975. And this motion was supported by 111 nations, including the 90 nations who had sponsored it in the first place, and it was opposed by 25 nations and abstained by 13 nations. And I just thought that was incredibly fascinating. It also just like illustrates the power that Israel has always kind of like held, like as, a, as, as far as like a political state in like world affairs. And if you've listened to my previous episodes, then you know that at the current state in time and, and like for decades leading up to this, the government in Israel is extremely far right and Zionist to the point where it's extremely racist and they've built an apartheid state based around their Zionism. Basically, Zionist values serve as the ideological foundation of Israel. I think that's kind of a big part of why Israel was created in the first place was this hope for for a place where everyone was safe obviously they kind of became twisted and they went about it in a terrible way um but i do understand what you mean also by having empathy for the original feeling of it because i feel the same i think every marginalized community wants what the original idea of zionism had i think zionist today is defined so differently and i think that's really unfortunate because it didn't have to become a racist ideology, but it did. I've been rambling too much, and we're going to take our first break. When we come <laughs> back, I want to talk to you about you. So, BRB. Uh, and we're back. Ami, take it away. What, you, you had a response for the, 
the thing I said about how Zionist values, they serve as the ideological foundation of Israel. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I try to like make a point of kind of as like a Jewish anarchist, specifically like what I was saying prior is that that's again, like kind of just the inevitable, well, in my mind, like the inevitable outcome of like a state is that there is yeah. going to be some amount of like division of population, like oppression of a certain class of people or a certain group of people, a consolidation of power in the hands of a few. Mm-hmm. So again, for me, like that's where this, like the original idea of like, let's have a place where Jews can have like safety and sovereignty and cultural like flourishing, like attaching that to a state was like kind of always bound to fail, but not inherent, like not exactly like you say, like not necessarily because that desire is like a wrong desire. Yeah. And then when we pile in kind of like, like other people's interests in terms of like the West having like an interest in having like Israel being like a friendly, like I consider like a proxy state for the West, like in the Middle East where um, they can, you know, like we've seen, like send their police officers to be trained mm-hmm. in these ways, but also the West is benefiting from that yeah. exchange. They have a little hold in the Middle East, like they always wanted to. Exactly. So their interest is to like maintain Israel, like as something that they can have influence in and have this kind of control over. And like to make it creepier, like the Christian, um, like evangelical Zionism, like Christian Zionism is also like a huge influence in the US. There was just a really interesting documentary, I can't remember the name now, but that was released like a year or two ago about this. And Christian Zionists actually make up like a larger lobbying body than like Jewish Zionists in the US. That's just because, so backwards. Yeah, because they, there's just so many more um, yeah. evangelicals and their interest in the state of Israel is that Jews will return there and then the rapture will happen. Wait, and- can you, yeah, I actually <laughs> want to talk to you about this because I, I 100% think you know more about this than I do because I do, I have heard that there are a lot of evangelical uh, Christians that are huge supporters of Zionism. Yeah. One, can you speak to like, if you know how that even, like where that, uh, I don't know, not solid, I guess like solidarity with Zionism came about mm. and also uh, what they believe, like the whole rapture thing, please. I would love to know yeah. more. Um, yeah, and I, again, like I highly recommend people like watch whatever this documentary is, just Google like Christian Zionism because I've mostly learned from that and from my own like internet wormholes. Um, I've just looked it up and I think it's Till Kingdom Come uh, 2020 film, right? Yeah. Cool. And so what I understand is there is this like somewhere in the Christian world, but like it has roots, at least in the evangelical world right now, this idea in the rapture, which I don't know that much about, but apparently the rapture will involve Jews returning to the land of Israel and Jesus returning and killing all of the Jews. Oh my God. Yeah. That's why they support Zionism? (laughs) That is why they support Zionism. Um, so they want, yeah, so they want Jews to go back to the land, the state of Israel in order for them to ultimately like be killed and go to hell. Be all in one place and be conveniently killed. 
Yeah. And so that, and that is one of the major lobbying arms. Like when we're talking about like the U S like sending money to, um, to Israel. And like, I just saw recently, like, like most of the Republicans are like supporting, um, this, yeah, the aid going to Israel. And it's like, why are they doing that when generally they don't really support Jews? You know, <laughs> like yeah. Republicans are not like BFFs with Jews. No, like, they don't really. I mean, inherently that way of seeing Zionism is 100% racist. Like it's yeah. <laughs> like people are, or not, not even just that, anti-Semitic. You know how it's people- It's anti-Semitic, yeah. It, it, that's really the, the defense a lot of the time when you have like a Palestinian politician talk about Israel or anything. Not even Zionism, they just mention Israel and, and they mm-hmm. get labeled anti-Semitic. But that is 100% anti-Semitic. It's actually anti-Semitic. Like, that is... Wow. And it's, like, it doesn't get noticed because, like, I feel like so much that, like, white Christians do in this country just, like, gets very overlooked as, like, something that actually has... um, Something that's actually worth, like, noticing and something that's actually worth, like, critiquing. Mm -hmm. Um. So I, in trying to understand, like, how did we get to this place? Like, how did we get to this point where, like, yeah, Israel is being supported and doing what it is doing right now to Palestinians. It has moved, in my opinion, so far away from, like, an actual, like, vision of, like, Jewish liberation. Yeah. And then you look at, like, who's actually really supporting this project right now. And it's people who actually just want us to die. Mm-hmm. It becomes very convoluted and... It, again, motivates my anti-Zionism in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. Can you, you can tell me as little and as many details as you want, but how did you come to identify as an anti-Zionist? How did you become, how did you embrace that that definition for yourself? I guess there's a lot of, like, aspects to that answer. One thing is, like, I do really care about, like, Jewish people being safe and Jewish people having our culture, like, Jewish people be able to express our culture and be able to express who we are. And I think, yeah, like being two or three generations from like the Holocaust and just like feeling like the intensity of that loss of life and land and place has just like given me that feeling of like, this is really important. And then also like living at a time right now in the US where like anti-Semitism is violent and I've experienced that violence and it is like a threat to like my sense of safety and my ability to express my culture. I've just been like very obsessed with like what does actually achieving those goals look like. Yeah. And when I look at the state of Israel and I see all 18 year olds are conscripted into the army, which is like literally like my great grandfather left Russia because he didn't want to be conscripted into the Russian army. And a lot of Jews, Ashkenazi Jews in the US like have that story. Like that's not liberation. Yeah. <laughs> When I see that, like, a lot of Jews in Israel have the choice of either being, like, very secular or being extremely religious, when even, like, a lot of more diverse, um, like, Jewish cultures have been assimilated into, like, this one monolithic culture, languages have been lost, like, practices have been lost, like, that's not, like, our culture being able to flourish, and also the violence done to Palestinians, like in the name of the state, in the name of this liberation, like nothing, nothing is worth that violence ever. So all of those things have kind of coalesced into my Jewish anarchism of also analyzing that through the state apparatus itself and being like, 
oh yeah, states will do this. Right. <laughs> we need to yeah. think more creatively. We need to think in a way that builds actual solidarity between Jewish community and Palestinian community and other marginalized people. And all of that has kind of just coalesced into, yeah, Jewish anti-Zionism, like just making sense on all of those levels. Yeah. No, I, I thank you for saying all of that. I, It's true. I think nothing is worth all that violence. And also, mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, like when you have any kind of desire, no matter how pure it is, because I think the, the basis of Zionism has a pure desire of mm-hmm. safety and yeah. uh, sovereignty. But when you have a desire and you add politics to it, or you add, I don't know, any kind of like country war, any, any anything, when you add like modern day limitations and, and structures, that's when it becomes something else. It devolves into something that it really shouldn't be. Like, I think what disturbs me the most um, is how many young people are like rallying in the streets, like a lot of like far right uh, groups in Israel will be like death to all Arabs or like they'll say mm-hmm. the most heinous things as well as do the most heinous things. But mm-hmm. I think I, it's unfortunate because I think even they kind of lost what Zionism was supposed to be about. It's not supposed yeah. to be about being only there, just you and killing everybody else or or, yeah. or seeing someone else as second, as second citizens or anything. But no, I... Yeah. Thank you for saying yeah. all of that. The, the army thing is a really good thing to bring up as well, just because Palestine has no army. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit silly to demand everyone even join the army for this fake uh, imaginary bad guy. Not that there is not there. There's definitely uh, terrorist like activity on yeah. both sides, I would say. But definitely. the vast majority is like this imaginary big bad wolf that does not exist and is like powered by U.S. and Western media. Totally. And that's where I start to think like, I don't know if this is like conspiracy or if this is real, but I start to think like, who is this actually serving? You know, like, who is it serving to like literally, yeah, put young people into a war every, in every generation that comes through this country? Um, And like, is it mostly serving like US and other like Western interests? Yeah to be able to yeah have that land be their proxy state mm-hmm. um and i don't have enough research to like back that claim up in a way that i would like to but that's that's like my next like research yeah wormhole is to try and yeah just understand like that dynamic because i think something else that i have a lot of questions about too and like the formation of the state of israel is like yeah understanding that like england did or like I don't know Great Britain England I think England they they were the ones who like partitioned that land and like they were the ones yeah. who ultimately signed it over. Yeah, and the British are responsible for ninety nine percent of the atrocities of the world. They can, <laughs> no, no, thank you. No. And sometimes like forgetting that part of the story kind of almost like contributes to this kind of like anti-Semitic rhetoric of like, oh, right. the Jews are this like all powerful people who were right. just able to conquer this land on their own. It's like a conspiracy theory fuel. Yeah. When it's like, no, like actually like the Jews at that time did not have like global power in that way. Like England, Britain was like, here you go. Here's this land in the same way that they did to like so much of the other yeah. Um, colonized places in that world, in in the world. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the British are responsible for every bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) And like, for me, like that bigger lens feels harder to talk about sometimes because I also like am also holding that like Jewish American support for the state of Israel, like fuels also the atrocities happening against Palestinians, Jewish support for the IDF in Israel, et cetera, like obviously are responsible. And like, I worry that if we don't look at these broader influences that we're not actually going to understand like how to systemically stop this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You have to understand how you got somewhere to like determine how to get out of where you are. Right. Totally. Yeah. Not to be too morbid or like to make this connection, but like Britain doing that is almost what the evangelical Christians want to do. Right? They're just like, oh, all you guys, stay here. Let's just shove them on this place that we don't really care about. And here you go. Like, it doesn't even feel like genuine support. You know what I mean? Like, I think Mm -hmm. in an alternate universe, Jewish people were welcomed into nations. And Mm -hmm. Britain was, like, opening their doors to immigrants. I think that is a much more um, kind notion in my opinion but what i do understand the desire to do otherwise but it is interesting to connect those two now that we've talked about both of them and how similar that is and on that too like like the most uh, like disturbing like thing that i've figured out in a while in relation to like this origin history of zionism um so like in the beginning of like the nazi power in Germany, in Germany specifically, before they wanted to like kill the Jews, they just wanted the Jews to leave. So they were like, go, just go. Mm-hmm. And I saw this, I was in Berlin last summer and I saw this um, picture of Nazis creating like a travel agency, isn't the right word, but like a travel depot that was specifically said like, go to Palestine oh, and was like directing Jews to go to Palestine. So, like, in that context, like, the state of Israel then has, like, a totally different, like, um, frame of Like, being, origin story, almost. Yeah, of being the place where, like, the world could send their Jews. Yeah. When they didn't want them in their home countries. And, and for me, that's also, like, a place that I've really fixated on is, like, wait, 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 you can't just, like say you're in solidarity with Jews because you created this country and we all have to go there. Like you actually have to stop being anti-Semitic, you know, you actually have to like, you should work on that first. (laughs) Yeah. Like let us like live in your countries and be safe. And, and it relates back to the evangelicals too, right? It's like, they're all about like being Christian Zionist and like supporting Israel, but they're also like very anti-Semitic in this country. So it's like, it feels like a similar sort of dynamic of like, yeah, yeah, we support you because we want you to go there. We want you to leave this country and go there. And we're not going to actually make it better for you in the place where you want to be, which is your family's home here, you know? So like, that's another frame that I've been working in, which makes me just kind of have a bigger question of like global responsibility for what's happening in Israel-Palestine right now. And how does like this global resistance to actually addressing anti-Semitism like play into the continued 
um, violence against Palestinians. Yeah. And just to be clear, being an anti-Zionist is not anti-Semitic. However, it is important to remember that just because someone is an anti-Zionist doesn't mean they're not anti-Semitic. It's an important reminder for those engaging in anti-Zionist organizing to also be doing work around anti-Semitism, both internally and the world at large, because both solidarity with Palestinians, as well as ensuring that we're interrogating the anti-Semitism in our lives and the world, is vitally important in this moment. No, I I was trying to divide these two episodes up. You already know this, I've told you, but just for the audience, like I wanted to this first episode to be a little bit more about the history and about how we got here. And tomorrow's episode, you'll hear about what I really want to talk to you about is like your work in ancestral healing and how that's a huge part of your work. And also the community that you've built in certain organizations. Uh, I think that is so critical when it comes to anti-Zionism or having solidarity with Palestinians, because that's, that's what you need to even make change happen. Right. So on that note, uh, I'm going to wrap it up here for now. Uh, Ami, can you plug, like, if people want to know more about you and your work, where they can find you? Yeah. So, um, again, I'm Ami Weintraub, and I just came out with this book, To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living. You can buy it through my publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Um, or you can also look up my website, amiweintraub.com. Um, and the book touches on like not Zionism specifically, but kind of the themes of like place and land and um, where do Jews belong in the world. Yeah. And uh, their website also has a list of their other works, which I highly recommend you seek out. I think voices like Ami's like yours are really important when it comes to talking about, I don't know, changing the world for the better in general, not even about anti-Zionism, but like even just trying to assess something in a more critical way, in a more personal way, even thinking about it being ancestral healing, I think is is so critical. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow for you guys. I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep talking to them right now for me. But, um, but yeah, tune in tomorrow for a continuation of this lovely conversation. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to It Could Happen Here. Yes, I still sound like this. It was the same day for me. But um, thank you for joining me again. Today is part two of a conversation I'm having with Ami Weintraub about uh, anti-Zionism and why it's important. And today I want to talk about their work and how much of anti-Zionism is actually based in ancestral healing. And um, yeah, I want to just tell you guys a bunch of good stuff because Ami's work I think is really important. So welcome back. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hello. Of course. I think when we first started talking about wanting to record together, you mentioned that talking about ancestral healing was really integral in even your definition of anti-Zionism. Can you kind of explain why? Sure. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's also like the other way around. Like my coming into like anti-Zionism led me into a path of ancestral healing. Because mm. I think something that we talked about like in the last episode is that... Um, a lot of the motivation for at least like the early origins of Zionism was the desire for safety and the desire to like have cultural expression, like mm-hmm. Jewish cultural expression be possible. And so I started to think like, why were those the desires at the time? And sort of moving back into my family's history, which so much of it has been like silence because of like the pain of the history. And also in some ways, because we've been told, you know, like you have a place, you have the home you live in now and you have the state of Israel mm-hmm. and you don't have to think about where you came from, right. you know? And so a lot of my work has been kind of like opening up that conversation of, you no, know, like, but where, where did my great grandparents like actually come from? Like, what was that place? Why did they leave? what is the longing that we, that we have for safety, the longing we have for home? And what does it look like to actually turn that longing back to, yeah, for my family, like our homes in Eastern Europe. Um, and that's kind of where I've been positioning a lot of my work these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about how even having Israel there almost erases like the 
the history of a lot of Jewish people, right? Because mm-hmm. it kind of just like, yeah, it's almost as if like, oh, this is where we all come from and this is where we all end up. And it's just simply not true. Can you tell me, well, first, could you define ancestral healing to me and like what that means to you? I feel like for me, ancestral healing has been the process of opening up to the voices of my ancestors and allowing them to really speak to me and starting to see that like the pain and the grief and yeah, just the the sorrow that I was carrying in my own body wasn't just my own. Yeah. And that sort of growing awareness has become like the avenue to which I can do ancestral healing, which mm-hmm. sometimes looks like learning a ton about like a specific Jewish practice that perhaps someone in my family at some point did and we've now forgotten. Mm. Or sometimes it looks like researching on Wikipedia, like the flowers that grew in my family's like shtetl in Eastern Europe. Um, And sometimes it looks like just crying and being sad (laughs) about like the things that we've lost. and sometimes it looks like talking to my ancestors, like in meditation or trance states, um, and offering them back the healing that I'm doing in this generation. Yeah, I love that. I love especially the the flowers. I think really got me. It's just like those little details are so important and mm-hmm. really define a place. I mean, I think ancestral healing is so important for like most people in general. I think it's kind of taken, maybe not taken too seriously by some normies. I don't know. But uh, even for me, I mean, our histories are very different, but I think what you said about like recognizing that like your pain is not just your own, like you're carrying a lot of a burden generation from generation to generation. And I think acknowledging that and learning more about yourself Anyone can do that. You don't, it doesn't have to be a certain, I don't know. I think that's what I, I, I always kind of want to get across that. Like, even for me, I found ancestral healing to be really important. I define it in a different way, but it's still like, I don't know a lot about my family's history. So that's been a little bit like a huge origin of that is because like, I'm, there's a lot of confusion there, but I love that you are taking it as like an internal journey. And also like recognizing that there's a connection there. I think people don't look at it as much as I want them to, I guess. I think it's a little bit yeah. too petty for people and it really isn't. It's just about like um, evolving and knowing yourself better. Like when you really, when it really comes down to it. Totally. Yeah. And, and for me too, like, so like a lot of, in my book, I talk a lot about like birch trees and the flowers that grow in this places of my where my ancestors were in like the lakes and the frogs and a big reason for that too is because like my ancestors aren't there anymore like there are no more like Jewish people in those places necessarily to like tell the story so when I think about like how do I really learn about who my ancestors were or what their practices and their culture was it's like oh at least I can see what they saw you know I can see the trees I can see the frogs and the land is holding that story for me if I can just open up and listen to it so that's also been like part of it for me as well as like 
opening up like opportunity for like connection and joy, even in the face of a lot of destruction. Um, and again, also like you're saying, I like really think this is something that like most people can do and is really enriching and would help us like all kind of metabolize like so mm -hmm. much of what has happened in the 20th century, before the 20th century, yeah. just like there's been so much like disruption and violence like that's happened for so many people yeah, and still happening, obviously. And in America, in like the dominant American culture, I think there's like a really big emphasis on like forgetting and just kind of being in this like present moment and not realizing that we've come from somewhere. And I just really resist that, that like urge to forget. And I, for me, that's also part of ancestral healing is like, how do we learn to remember? Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that so much. Um, no, I think the thing that really made me realize that ancestral healing is extremely real and necessary was maybe like, a, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe like 10 years ago, I learned something about a family member that really put into context something that I was going through and that I have always felt and I'm just part of who I am. Um, and I, I'm being vague about it because it's just personal, but uh, we could talk off mic if you want. But for audience purposes, the the point that I'm trying to get across is I learned something and I learned more about myself and I was almost more at peace with how much I was struggling with what it was. And I let myself be okay with how much I was struggling and the pain I was carrying because I recognized it wasn't just mine. It was it was it was hers. So yeah, I think if you ask me what like the whole point of life is, it's self, maybe not improvement's the right word, but like self-discovery and like, I don't know, nature and, and yeah. leaving a place better than you found it. I think it's as simple as that. I think mm -hmm. it gets really convoluted with other things, but, but yeah, as you said, I think anyone could benefit from learning more. Cause I, I, I agree. I think what you said about forgetting really resonated with me. So yeah, really like and that. Like, and like America is built on forgetting. Like we're supposed to forget like the genocide of uh, indigenous peoples on this yeah. land. We're supposed to forget like the horrors of slavery. We're supposed to just forget like even what's happening right now um, in our country. Um, so I think the act of remembering is like has so much power to shake like the current moment up yeah. and to bring us to a new place. It's ironic that like the biggest slogan of one of America's most tragic events is don't forget when yeah. you really think about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, oh, this like, is the one thing you're going to say. Yeah. Don't forget. Let's forget about everything else though. Totally. Yeah. And no, yeah. it's such a, like, that's our memory. Like in, yeah. in um, in Germany, they do have a lot about like memory culture. That's like a really like specific term that they have. And oh, like, really? we don't even have that. Yeah, we don't even have that term here in the US. Wait, can you explain that to me a little bit if you know, if you know about it? So Germany does have like a big like culture around like remembering the atrocities of the Holocaust. Right. And, and they call it like memory culture. Um, so that's like monuments or um, museums. Just like how is like World War II discussed? How is the Holocaust remembered? And yeah, like they remember a lot more than we do, yeah. <laughs> which 
is ironic and also not in some ways. Um, but yeah, we don't even have that concept here in the same way um, of like memory culture. Like what is our yeah. cultural of remembering? Um, and and I think obviously like, there has been some amount of that around like, yeah, like indigenous history and like black history um, in relation to like monuments and Thanksgiving and like all of those things. But um, we don't have like really like memory culture like integrated into like a day-to-day existence and in fact it's obviously being even fought against like in florida and other places like that Um, oh i just love that that idea of memory culture in general i've never heard of that yeah i love that so much and i mean just even thinking about it just as we're talking uh germany has uh, they refuse to forget an atrocity that they did right Mm -hmm. I think it's it's a little bit interesting that in America they've forgotten about the atrocities they did, and they want to not forget about an atrocity that was done to them. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like very victimy of America, if you ask totally. me. Um, because it's really easy not to forget when someone wronged you, but I think it's really convenient to forget when you, um, you know. Destroy the entire civilization. You know what I mean? To put it lightly. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And I'm not trying to say to take 9-11 lightly at all. I think what happened was yeah. atrocious and, and terrible. But when you think about memory culture and what Germany is so committed to remembering versus America, just a little interesting to me now that I think about it. And totally. who committed who or who committed what rather. Yeah. Uh, before I get too rambly, let's take our first break. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Ami. Uh, Ami, when we were talking about recording together, in addition to ancestral healing, you talked about the importance of of building a diasporous Jewish community that is committed to solidarity with Palestinians and other marginalized people, generally through an anarchist lens, and also building a safe community for Jews outside of Israel to counter the rhetoric that the only place that's safe for Jews is Israel. And as you said, it generally leads to a large focus on uh, anti-fascism and cultural reclamation. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? And then um, there's certain communities that you're a part of that I really want to get into, but let's start there. Yeah. So kind of in this journey, I would say of saying, okay, like, if we're going to be Jewish anti-Zionists, if we're going to be Jewish anarchists, like what does that materially look like? Like how do we uh, put that into practice? And so, yeah, kind of honed in on those two aspects again of safety and culture. And so a lot of my work now is around thinking about like, how do we uh, create safety for Jews in the places where they are living in diaspora development into like growing to this like, Jewish anti-Zionism and Jewish anarchism, trying to understand like what does it mean to like actually put this into practice, and or when I was thinking of that, I was trying to think of like how do we create safety for Jews in the places where they want to live in diaspora, and also create the environment where Jewish culture is able to flourish, and that's led me, like you said, to developing and supporting and working with. A lot of Jewish communities that are like committed to like anti-fascism, committed to solidarity with other marginalized peoples, and also 
really committed to um, like reclamation of Jewish traditions, um, specifically by like more marginalized people within the Jewish community as well. Um, and I really see like those projects as like part of my like solidarity work, even though it is supporting like Jewish pe peoples in the day to day, but ultimately it's creating a spaciousness where Jews don't feel like they have to like cling on to Zionism in the ways that they were before. Um, and I'm really curious also of like how to sort of make that praxis more visible to the general left because I do um, like a big part of like the book I'm writing, like there's a whole section of me talking about what it's like to have lived in Pittsburgh, like before and after the Tree of Life shooting, where I was a teacher at the synagogue at the time that it happened. Um, wow. So my life was like very impacted by this, like mm -hmm. really like horrible, like active violence, like anti-Semitic violence. Um, and the most shocking part was that like anti-Semitism was occurring before that happened and it still continued after like in Pittsburgh specifically. Um, so like the question left me with is like, are we actually addressing like the rise of anti-Semitism in yeah. America today? And that's why I want to like really talk about this praxis of like addressing anti-Semitism and allowing and creating space where Jewish culture can flourish, like as a praxis that I'm curious for more people on the left to um, understand as like vitally important, like for Jewish people and also for solidarity with Palestinians too. Um, so that's, that's my topic that I'm yeah very interested in right now. No, I, I, I love that. I think it's so important what you're saying and so necessary to build a community where Jewish people feel safe that so yeah exactly they don't have to cling on to zionism as a way mm -hmm. to feel accepted or safe or belonged or have, have belonging anywhere and in that way it's it's really simple to see how that is intertwined with solidarity with palestinians because it ultimately is saying like israel is not the end all be all like we're at the end of the day people going through shit have have we have our cultures and we have to stick by each other Maybe that's a little bit elementary, but I think what I'm trying to say is I really appreciate that you have built this community and uh, are so committed to to continuing to to enrich it and and develop it because I think that's so essential, especially just considering like the idea of Zionism in the first place, like that really pure intention that was there. I think it's it's okay to still live on in certain areas because it was pure. It wasn't it wasn't about Israel at all. Israel as it is today rather. Yeah. So can you tell me about uh, this organization Rage? Yeah, so Rage is this small collective called um the acronym stands for rebellious anarchist young Jews. In the most basic sense, we formed this as like a sort of response to like the Zionism that we were experiencing around us and a lot of it, like the word rage being like anger of like, wow, I can't believe like this is what's being sold to us as like our liberation. And what it formed into was like after the 
tree of life shooting my sibling pretty much texted me and was like let's make this thing happen again and we um started to create like more like political like jewish anarchist like art and writing um and putting it out on facebook um and people started responding to it and it really felt like a piece of like the rising of like a jewish anarchist movement um in this country right now a piece of many but something that kind of um was like a, uh, a light or like a what's the phrase like uh like a bat signal is the only way i can put it of like hey like all of you out there who are thinking about like what jewish anarchism might mean are thinking about like what like organizing um could look like when it's based on our culture and our practices and has like deep reverence for that instead of like um an embarrassment around our practices all of you who are like creative and artistic and that's your mode of engagement of engaging like we can come together and we can like create something new and that has just like that desire has just grown since then and is being reflected in so much organizing right now and rage itself is like not we're not really doing as much as a collective anymore but definitely that spirit is like living on in a lot of um like in the book i'm writing and like the work that my siblings doing and, and a lot of like the um, artistic creation that's happening around jewish anarchism i love that that's yeah. so cool i'm really grateful that out of something so horrific that you went through you were able to come together with your sibling and and almost use that as fuel to really come mm-hmm. together i think it's really beautiful yeah and i think that's like that felt like the challenge in that moment was like are we gonna use this as a moment to like support the police who you know killed the shooter we're going to use this as a moment to like buddy up with the politicians who are trying to like befriend the jewish community now all of a sudden or are we going to use this as a moment like a big phrase that was being thrown around in pittsburgh was like safety and solidarity mm-hmm. are we going to use this as a moment to like really affirm that message and to really like speak to the danger that we are feeling as jews in this country and the resilience that we have and the resistance and the revolutionary power we have to like um sort of call out the systems that are creating that um and i'm really grateful yeah that my sibling and others around me were able to like create that path through a more revolutionary mode yeah oh it's important especially yeah you don't want to see your community used as a tool for politics i think having having that be a product of such a tragedy is shameful Mm -hmm. and so fighting against that i think is really necessary to maintain the sense of like reality to be honest Mm -hmm. like and not get caught up in like what ever reality i don't know politicians or the media or whatever the shit wants you to believe in yeah yeah so a few years after Rage kind of continued to grow, I was able to found this community center called Rutzon Center for Healing and Resistance in Pittsburgh. And it's a queer Jewish anarchist community center. The only one, believe it or not, in the U.S. <laughs> um, maybe I mean, in the world That's this cool point. and also sad. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I love it, but I also am disappointed in us. Yes. <laughs> 
And it was like, obviously a lot of community support. Like, like I'd say like I founded it, but it was more like I had the ability to like kind of pull people together, pull together a space, get grant money, like do that type of work. Um, and the idea is really like when we are like, um, in political struggle, we need to resist, but we also need to heal. And I think I was just also feeling like a lot in, and this was like in 2019 ish. So the like integration of like healing and more like therapeutic techniques, I felt like, um, into like political frameworks like wasn't happening as much at the time as I think it is now even and just really claiming like we can't do political work without like our like healing work and again like that creating a space where we could engage in like anti-fascist organizing we could engage in solidarity with other like marginalized people and we could also really honor Jewish tradition and let that be like a foundation for us and yeah, I, I ended up leaving the community this time last year to like pursue other things, but it still is existing in Pittsburgh and is still like very much like a a hub for um, not just Jewish people too, but like a lot of people who are engaging in alien resistance work. Yeah, it's just, I, I love that it exists. Uh, and also just, I, I was thinking, actually, I'm going to hold that thought. And I want to take our second break. Are you going to have to come back and see what I was going to say? So enjoy these ads. <laughs> okay, we're back. I had a coughing fit and now I'm back. I was going to say that I love that all those things can be true at the same time, like Jewish mm-hmm. solidarity and Palestinian uh, solidarity and and remembering and practicing like traditional rituals and culture and traditions mm-hmm. and practices and all this stuff. I think it's nice to... Remember that all of those can be true at the same time, because I think especially now people identify anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And I think it's really important to to see a community of, of Jewish people like embracing their religion and culture and loving it. And at the same time, supporting Palestine, because <sighs> it's just the clearest example of how Zionism is not a factor in your love of of your culture and, and, and your religion. I think it's a really good example of just, I don't know, demonstrating how much, how much of a falsity that is in the first place to equate those two together when really Zionism itself is anti-Semitic, as we, as we mentioned in the last episode. Um, I also want to give us plenty of time to talk about your work and as much as you want to tell us about your new book, To the Ghosts Who Are Still Living, it's out now, everybody go get it. It's a book of essays. And yeah, can you, if you want to, um, tell me how you came about even starting to write these essays and like what motivated you to, to embark on this journey? Yeah. So I just came out today with this book to the ghosts who are still living. And it's my first book that I've written. And it's pretty much a collection of essays that is broken up into three sections. The first section is like stories of my ancestors in Eastern Europe and their lives and them coming to America and like that process. The second section is my stories of living in Pittsburgh during the rise of anti-Semitism. And the third section is 
returning back to my ancestors' shuttle, um, which the village in Lithuania last summer with my sister and kind of yeah, grappling with these questions of like, do I belong here? Like, mm. what is this land? Where am I from? Like, where do I, where can I be in the world? So I guess like the clearest moment of when I felt like I needed to write this was during the summer of 2020. And there was an incident that I write about in the book of Nazis coming to like the anarchist bookstore in Pittsburgh, which was like a few blocks from my house at the time. And they were, I don't even remember like exactly what their poster said, but they were handing out these like um, anti-anarchist posters that like probably had something anti-Semitic on them also or just like that vibe was there mm -hmm. and they were just flyering and the cops came up and shook hands with these Nazis and wow. let them stay. Wow. And, I mean, yeah. not surprised, but still, well. Exactly. <laughs> and then the Nazis actually ended up pulling a gun on some of the anti-fascist protesters who were there and didn't actually end up like shooting anyone, but that was the scene of what had happened and but still the fact that that he whoever that was was able to do that and the cops were totally. like hey buddy like, yeah exactly just to make it more clear how shit cops are totally um and so yeah i just witnessed that all happen and it just kind of felt like the last um the last straw i guess the last mm -hmm. thing and i just felt like kind of ripped open inside, um, realizing that the anti-Semitism that I had been researching, like, in my own family's history was, like, happening right now, like, to me in this moment. And I just had this feeling that, like, I was like, I don't know if people on the left or people in general are, like, really seeing what's happening. Yeah. You know, really, like, understanding, like, the fear that I have, like, as a Jewish person right now. And I'm not sure if people are like understanding that connection to like the contemporary fascism that's happening in the US to the fascism that my ancestors experienced. Um, and it made me really sad and it made me like really feel so much pain because I just didn't want my family's stories to be like forgotten or not to be remembered in this moment when I think we're trying to understand what's happening in this country and like my family has already gone through a lot of what's happened, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and we're being attacked now in that way. Um, I mean, as far as our history books go, anti-Semitism ended when the Holocaust ended, right? Exactly. So, and the U.S. like saved the day yeah, and now the, the Jews the are fine. <laughs> exactly. I think that's literally the narrative that a lot of people believe in this, in this country, which is totally. so unfortunate because... It just, yeah, it's, it's when, so when incidents like this happen, it's not just like out of the blue. It's because there's this lingering hatred and, mm -hmm. and fascism that's been there and just growing and evolving and going undetected, even though it's so obvious. It's just become, I don't know, maybe I was going to say more subtle, but at this point, it's not subtle at all. They're very okay. outright about it. But I think it's like almost become like normalized or something. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but no, I, I thank you for sharing that. Uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, I could imagine that potentially this book was like maybe healthy process or like heal a little bit yourself. Mm -hmm. Did that happen? 
definitely, yeah. Like at a certain point, I was writing these essays and I was like, oh, I don't even need to do anything with this. Like this has been like the most healing project that I've already done. Um, and so like also my hope with this book is that the healing that it's offered me, like perhaps it can offer to others. And I've kind of been thinking of it as like, um, in Jewish myth, there's like this idea of like a, a golem or a golem um, that's like this monster created from the mud um, with like the word emet written on its forehead, which means truth. And this monster is like raised from the mud to protect the Jewish community of Prague against anti-Semitism. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's a really Wait, cool story. That's cool. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I've kind of been like, oh, I wonder if like this book can kind of be like a golem, you know, like this kind of anti-fascist monster mud creature made from words yeah. that can like offer healing and maybe um, offer some like protection in this moment. Um, so that's, that's my greatest hope for this book right now. That's first of all, sick about the yeah. mud monster. <laughs> love that. Love that for you. And love that for me. Love that for everybody. Um, and second, I think that's a beautiful intent. And I think it 100% will help others heal. And even if the person reading it is not Jewish, I think it's important to remember and to realize that you still have very real fear being mm -hmm. a Jewish person living in America or anywhere else, you know, yeah. because anti-Semitism didn't get solved when Hitler shot himself. I'm sorry, totally. guys. And so I think this book can help a lot of people and I really encourage everyone to go buy it now. We're recording today on August 1st and today is when it was released. So by mm -hmm. the time you hear it, it'll be out and ready to be read. I just highly encourage you to really dive into Ami's work because it's just so important and so healing for everybody. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Of course, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to open yourself up and I because I know a lot of these things have really painful origins and so mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're willing to talk about them yeah thank you yeah and, and I also hope that like yeah like this book also can sort of be like a window for like leftists who want to like integrate more like Jewish history into their anti-fascism that it can be like a window for that and I do hope like also that it can like also build bridges with like other peoples who have experienced genocide, experienced displacement from lands, experienced like experience ongoing like fear for their safety where they are in the world. And I hope that also by sharing like my family stories that like um, those bridges can start to like be built and we can start to create more community around that shared history as well. To really build strong allyship with the Jewish community, mm -hmm. actually understanding what that means and actually understanding what the Jewish community is going through and the fears they have. I think that is where you have to start. So, so yeah, I yeah. just am so glad to have had this conversation and I know people will benefit from it and I 100% know people will benefit from your book. Uh, again, yeah. that is to the ghosts who are still living um, you can buy it now through your publisher, which is Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. 
Nice. Um, and I'll put all the links in the description of the episodes, Ami's website, and all the good stuff. But yeah, thank you again for joining me today. I'm going to probably drag you back at some point just to continue talking to you because you've been lovely. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be back on. Hell yeah. I did a good job if you said that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, do you have any kind of social media you want people to follow you at or just the book? I do. Yes. Let me look at <laughs> Don't get it wrong. I'm really bad at social media. No, same. Um, same. But I'm trying to be better. Okay. You can also follow me on Instagram, Ami Weintraub3. That's A M I W E I N T R A U B in the number three. Yeah, and I'm like I said, like the work I'm doing, I hope is like conversation starters, is like ways to build connections. So also if this was interesting to you, feel free to like reach out and say hey. And yeah, and my voice is just like one of many on this topic. And I hope that yeah, people continue to study and learn and explore the nuances of of what I've shared today. Thank you. And uh, a big reason why I wanted to have these conversations and have them as conversations is to also illustrate that it's possible to talk about things, these like Zionism in particular, which is this very taboo, almost like weird word to say out loud to a mm-hmm. lot of people. It's really helpful to talk about it casually and openly because that's yeah. how we're going to understand it. That's how we're going to understand anti-Zionism and why Zionism isn't great right now and all this other stuff. So I hope that someone took that away and will continue to have these conversations in their personal lives because this is just a fucking podcast, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but real life is what matters. Um, So yeah, that's all I have to say. Um, Thank you again. You are the best. Uh, (laughs) And go buy Ami's book to the ghosts who are still living. Go buy it now. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. 
How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.